Welcome back to a brand new episode. Today is a very special episode. Like I said, today's special episode is another, um, it's back to the case of the Kirsten Denise Smart case. So, remember how we, at the very beginning of the Kirsten Denise Smart, I told you there was a podcast as well that was doing this one, but he was already knee-deep into this case and he was doing his the best that he could with all the knowledge that he had and it was called your own backyard and we listened to it and I listened to it as well and we all listened to how Paul Flores was a gross human being and that he violated multiple women and drugged multiple women to have sex with them and get whatever the hell he wanted so but, and I let you guys listen to the last part of the other one, which was called A Brief Update and also the conclusion teaser that was going to happen. And what they came out. Those episodes came out. And the first episode, Paul, not Paul, it was People versus Flores, the conclusion part one, and People versus Flores, the conclusion part two. In the first part, Part one, the conclusion. You listen to the team that prosecuted Paul and Ruben Flores. And that's an hour and six minutes. Well, in the conclusion, part two, Chris, the podcaster of Your Own Backyard, recaps the closing arguments with help from the prosecution team. And that's an hour and 47 minutes. These are very lengthy um, videos, so. Yeah, and they go into real detail of, like, what, not, like, what happened in court, or what the, what was said, what the details were, and what they used, the prosecution, to help and nail Paul Flores. But not just Ruben, because I believe what was said is that Ruben was, like, you know, um, kind of an accomplice to his son to the killing of Kristen Denise Smart um, but before I get into that I have to say something remember the Idaho murders yeah the Idaho murders that happened like months ago not even last year well the person that's being convicted of it I wanted to know the his fucking motive Brian Kohlberger's fucking motive because everyone has a motive. What I said was being a sleuth at murder, like these things, these type of things like, you know, Kirsten Denise Smart and all this stuff and like the Night Stalker, all that other things like that and Dr. Death. I was like... Before I found out the the mo before I did that before like I found his motive for killing these four innocent students, I was like maybe he was an obsessed person and he liked this one girl and didn't get his way with that girl and he decided to stalk her first and then when he found the right opportunity, 
rang the doorbell, came in, because she knew him, he or she knew him, and then they came in, the couple, the boy and girl that were a couple in the room, were in the room, but they heard all this happening with the other girl, the other two girls, and they were talking to him, and probably he didn't get his way, and the, and the couple probably saw it from the balcony of their their home, and he witnessed them mur like he he like they witnessed him murdering the girl and the girl witnessed that the friend the roommate witnessed that they had like these girls lived all together these three girls except for the boyfriend of the girl and then the and they had another third roommate like, they had another, like, another roommate, but she was asleep. She was asleep during the whole thing, which, poor girl, I, I feel bad for her. Because she didn't really know what the hell was going on, so she was asleep. Until she saw that they weren't awake and that they weren't coming out of the rooms. And so she got skeptical, and not skeptical, but scared of her own mind. And then she checked the rooms and they weren't breathing. And that's when she got all frantic and... That's when police arrived and detectives and all that stuff. And those videos um, sparked people's interest of when the girls went to go get food from a food truck and, and things like that. But what I said was that he was obsessed with one of the girls and that he murdered them. And the roommate was talking, like, you know, like they were both talking to him. The other two girl best friends were talking to him and that he didn't get his way. So he had the weapon on him and killed her while the other best friend of the the same roommate saw it and got stabbed and then the couple saw it then he ran up the stairs and when they went and saw what happened they ran and shut the door and he heard it and probably ran up the stairs banged on the door probably bolted the door and probably grabbed both of them and stabbed them both in the bed and that's why there was blood stains on the bed but sadly these two like the couple shared a dog and that dog did not bark because that dog it was said that that dog barked consistently so I'm surprised that this dog knew this person to be able to not bark because dogs are noticeably annoying to be barking I'm not saying annoying annoying but like annoying to the point that they bark consistently to strangers so I'm just surprised that like this dog did not bark like, maybe this dog got familiar with this person, or this person was a dog lover and loved dogs and had his own dog at his own house and lived with dogs in the majority of his lifetime. We don't know. But what I do know is, like, with enough information of dogs that I know, is that once you get familiarized with a dog and the dog gets familiarized with you, especially if it's from a neighbor, they get familiarized with you like an a, like three days like if you see them for three days they'll know you and they'll recognize you that's why like we have this neighbor this neighbor's dog named bella and she's so cute she's a yorkie and she shakes when she doesn't meet anyone like she gets nervous and she shakes kind of like um tourettes but not really like tourettes so she when she first got to know me she was like all shaky and kind of sporadic and her shaking and I was like, why does she do that? She goes, like, she's just nervous, and she's, like, a nervous um, dog, and she doesn't really know you. And I was like, oh, okay. 
So then I got to know her, the owner, and the dog for a few days in passing. And then she got to know me, the dog. And that's how long it takes. It takes a, uh, like a week or so to the dog to get familiarized with you. Even more, it depends on how old the dog is. The dog was really young. The Yorkie was really young. But what I'm saying is, is that maybe in the amount of time that he knew the girl, he stayed over for a few days one time, and maybe that's how the dog got familiarized with him, and that's why the dog did not bark. That's my theory. But then when I searched up the motive, I was like, I was, I was like kind of excited because I was like, when I read the motive, I was like, yes, but also in my head, I'm like, no, because... I was like, yes, I was right. And no, because I was like, that's a fucked up motive. That's a really fucked up motive. Do you be really obsessed with some girl and then, like, you don't get your way with her and then you just, like, murder them? And they, like, honestly, like, when I was making my bed today and I found out that motive, I was like, you know, like, that's exactly, if I was a murderer, that's exactly what I would do. If I killed someone and there were witnesses, you kill the witnesses. And they don't know what happened. That way they won't tell the cops. That's why he killed those three people. Because one, they witnessed it. And two, they didn't mind their business. But I'm not saying because they didn't mind their business it was okay for him to murder them. He could have just said, hey, do not say it. He could have th- threatened them with the knife and pointed at them. Don't fucking, or like, say, don't like fucking say a word or something like that. But I'm not saying to help him. He's saying like, Honestly, if you would have done something like that to a person, you would have threatened them and been like, don't say a word to anyone, this, this, and that, and threatened their lives, not like, kill them, kill them. But that was his idea. I'm not saying I'm going to go on a killing spree and kill people, I'm just saying it's more idealistic if you do that, and then killing and adding four bodies to attached to you. Like, it makes no damn sense, honestly. But it makes perfect sense to kill off witnesses because they could honestly blurt out, like, hey, this guy came to my house and he killed one of my friends. And, and like, like, what's his name? I don't really know his name. I have a good description of him. Okay. Um, he was lean. He had maybe slender eyes. Well, kind of a little wide eyes. And his eyebrows were kind of thick and thin. And his hair was curly on the top. But there was, like, shaved hair on the side. And his jawline was kind of like a V-shape. Or like a V-oval shape. And his lips were kind of a little thick and a little thin. And his nose was kind of small well, not small to the point where you can't see it, but just small and, well, medium, no, just small, but like medium-sized. And then they'll ask you a description of how the nose looked, not just the sizing. And then that's why he would kill them. He was like, he was probably like, oh, crap. Busted. So... When I read that motive, I was like, fuck. The mo- I was like, the mo- I'm not laughing, but I'm like, I'm laughing at myself because I'm like, I can't believe I guessed that. I was like, Ugh, maybe I should stop guessing things. <laughs> but I'm like, 
that's who I am. I always guess things. I always guess things, and most of the time I'm right, and most of the time I'm wrong. Because when I guessed that, I was like, okay, maybe I should have said anything. He was obsessed with one of the girls. Obviously, it wasn't the one with the boyfriend. It was obviously the other two best friends. I was like, I can't. I can't. These poor people, these poor people that were madly innocent. See, this is what happens when you go on dates with college kids or college people. And then, like, that person doesn't like the man, but that man is madly obsessed with her. And that person's not. That woman is not. And then you just... And if you're madly obsessed over someone like that, that makes you weird. And once you're weird that way, nobody... And the, well, I just learned this from experience. Once you're weird in that aspect, nobody will really like you that much. Because when I was in middle school, I know I've said this before, but when I was in middle school, just because when I didn't like to do the PACER test or fifth grade, fifth grade, <laughs> can't even speak. <laughs> in fifth grade, I didn't like to do the fitness gram PACER test, as everyone knows. And so I legit took it upon myself to hide in the bathroom. And when they were doing the fitness gram pace, I just, I was like, I can't, I'm not going to do it. And then my gym teacher, Mr. Silverblatt, was, kept calling me, kept calling me. And then people go like, kept calling me stalker because of the fact that I kept hiding in the bathroom. Like, I was only hiding in the bathroom because I didn't want to do the fitness gram pacer test. That's why I was hiding out in the bathroom. People hide out for different fucking reasons. But people don't want to know the reasons. They just want to just make up shit out of their ass. I didn't make up shit out of my ass. I just kind of guessed as to why he killed these other three women and women and men. I just want to know why he did it, what made him do it, what drove him to do it. Like, he's... Like, if you look at Brian Kohlberger, you just think that Charles Manson, um, T- Ted Bundy... Jeffrey Dahmer and and Richard Ramirez. You think of those five or four individual people into one person. That's just crazy. So, that's all I have for, like, the Idaho murders. I know that was very short, but, like, yeah, that's all I have. So, but, like I said, we're going to be listening to the conclusion part one. So, without further ado... Listen very carefully of what they're talking about. You want to do an interview? Kenny, what do you know about your Auntie Kristen? Well, I know that a lot of things have justice for Kristen on them because I have a good tar pick and on the back of it it says justice for Kristen and a lot of other things that I've seen like rocks have like things that say justice for Kristen, even signs. I know that she was a good woman and she died when she was 19. The man that killed Kristen is in jail now and we want good things to happen to Kristen's spirit. You say, I love Kristen. I love Kristen. <laughs> what do you know about She's smart and skilled. She is kind. And justice for Kristen.
This episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's been a long time since we last spoke. This has been a tough chapter to close, for a lot of reasons. The major players in the trial of People vs. Flores were under gag order for almost two years. It was assumed by everyone that the order would dissolve with the verdicts. And my plan was to finally sit down with them for one last episode. But the gag order didn't fully dissolve on October 18th. The prosecution declined to grant any interviews until after sentencing on December 9th. Then, defense attorney Robert Sanger filed a motion requesting to delay that sentencing for several more months. So, I packed up my car and headed home after five months of living in Monterey County and waited. Since the news of the verdicts was worldwide before I had even walked out of the courtroom on October 18th, I decided not to compete for the scoop or to chase down jurors and witnesses in the parking lot for interviews like a good reporter would. The major networks and local media outlets were all over the story, but I was underneath it. This documentary was supposed to be finished almost four years ago, and instead, well, you know the story. Now that everyone is finally free to talk, and we've all had time to breathe and process, I want to rewind for a bit before I pick up where we left off, to reflect on how we got to this point, and introduce you to the team that prosecuted Paul and Ruben Flores, all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. The Health Services in October of 2019. Your Own Backyard originally aired in six installments from September 30th through November 11th of 2019. And according to several friends and family members who spoke to me on the condition of anonymity, Susan Flores was paying close attention. Interestingly, a number of people associated with the Flores family have reached out to me over the past few years to share information. Each one I spoke to expressed their belief that Susan and Reuben had assisted in concealing Kristen Smart's remains in some way. That October, I reached out to San Luis Obispo Sheriff Ian Parkinson, requesting an interview with anyone at the sheriff's office who could answer my questions about the case. As a postscript to my email, I mentioned my contact with those sources who told me that Susan Flores was an avid listener and offered to give the sheriff's department an opportunity to share info in the podcast that might be beneficial to the case if the Flores family was listening. Parkinson responded that afternoon. Chris, thank you for the email. I will meet with my staff in the morning and discuss your request. And he did. The next morning, Parkinson met with sheriff's investigators to consider the strategy and lead Detective Clint Cole then brought the idea to the district attorney's office, where they negotiated a plan of setting up wiretaps on the Flores family phones before releasing information through the media to stimulate discussion of the case. Only I didn't learn about those negotiations until three years later, sitting in a Salinas courtroom, when defense attorney Robert Sanger asked Detective Cole about it on the witness stand. On my end, things were silent. The sheriff didn't respond to my email again until weeks later, 
when Sheriff's Commander Nate Paul reached out to offer me an interview. By that time, my six episodes had concluded, and I thought my role in telling the story was done. But I still had a lot of unanswered questions, so I accepted the offer, and sat down with Commander Paul for a discussion you heard pieces of in Episode 7, and a lot of pieces you didn't hear. But were there any things in the podcast that were said or that came out in people's maybe recollections or stories that you hadn't heard before, or that when you did hear you thought, now that's something that's interesting, or that's something that we might want to think about? Um, I actually do have a question for you that I was going to mention, ask you about later, because I just got this email today. Okay. So we can uh, we can table that for now. But if there's follow-up info along those lines, you know, we would be reaching out to you for more information, because you clearly are eliciting public response that could provide the tip. It was the beginning of an unlikely alliance. And by the end of 2019, investigators were able to secure a wiretap warrant for the Flores family's phones. The first since 1999. Detective Cole had developed a few new theories and strategies, too. One was to reach out to Paul's ex-brother-in-law, Brett, who lived with Irma Linda Flores just a mile away from Cal Poly on the night that Kristen Smart died, and who lived with Paul even after divorcing Irma Linda in 2004. Another strategy was to offer Irma Linda full immunity from prosecution, if she cooperated with the investigation and shared what she knew about Kristen Smart's death. On a rainy day in January of 2020, Cole flew to Washington State and went to Irma Linda's door. We went to her ex-husband's house, which got him calling her, which got her calling Susan. And then our goal was to just give her this immunity letter. We knew she wouldn't give us an interview, and I had written a brief little statement, you know, that statement reads in part, I've been working on the Kristen Smart case for over two years and have not attempted contact with anyone in your family before today. When I started reviewing this case, I kept an open mind and assumed that Paul Flores was not involved in Kristen's disappearance. I now know for sure he is, and Kristen is dead, and so do you. Paul is very soon going to be in a position where he needs to tell us his story. This case will be solved soon. You can be the one who's responsible for ending this nightmare for everyone and move on with your life. Until she is found, this case will never go away. You and your family will never have any peace. There will always be an open and active investigation. You did not ask for this to happen. Paul sucked you into his mistake. With that letter in hand, Cole introduced himself to Irma Linda. She slammed the door in our face, called 911, which actually helped us because <laughs> we had one of their detectives with us, so they knew what was happening. He went to speak to her and was able to give her the paperwork, and she was just not a very nice person at all. Ermelinda never did speak with investigators. But even with the wiretap in place, information was somehow traveling from Washington State down to Susan Flores in Arroyo Grande and down to Paul in San Pedro without crossing the wire. We knew they were privy to wiretaps from the 99 era when, when the wiretap was done. 
they were communicating in ways that the wiretap was not picking up. WhatsApp, we don't know for sure what, what they were using. The immunity letter got from Irma Linda to Susan to Paul, but never across our wiretap. And, and there were other times when they were talking in what seemed to be code words, using initials, um, you know who, you know, like you know who's willing to come and help you. And Paul would say, yeah, would never say the person's name. We have an idea. I think you know who she is. Stuff like that. They're, they're very, very cagey. The month-long wiretap also gave investigators some insight into the dynamics of the Flores family. Like the fact that Susan and Ruben were preparing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in bail money or attorney's fees in the event that Paul was arrested, which they believed was imminent. But Paul, 43 years old at the time, really didn't seem to care that his parents were giving up their lives and their money to protect him. At all. Paul really didn't have a great relationship with either parent. His relationship with Susan has changed now that he's incarcerated, but he called Reuben Reuben when he called him on the, when they did talk once or twice. It seemed like mom, Susan got on their nerves. I don't want to spend my would-be inheritance on this shit. Rather do something more struck, you know, more, um, rather do something with it. I get myself out of debt and, um. Right. Okay. So what else did you call about? Well, that's pretty much it. So, um. And then with things heating up, Susan Flores called Paul on January 26th and asked him to contact his first attorney, Mel Delamont, who since retired to prepare for what she referred to as the what if. Considering what happened with Ema, um, I, I think you have to make some kind, try to make some kind of contact with Mel. Jeff, you know, is coordinating everything um, for the what if, you know. <coughs> but I need you to make the call, I think. Because I need to know where it's at. Yeah. You know, to make sure that you're covered, because the rest of us are. Yeah. And they're going to work together, these four attorneys, if we ever get to that point, which I don't know if we will or not. The other thing I need to do is to start listening to the podcast. I need you to listen to everything they say so we could punch holes in it. Um wherever we can punch holes maybe we can you you're the one that can tell me it was the call that investigators had been waiting for susan flores who had been paying close attention to the podcast for months needed paul to tell her where they could punch holes the most striking part of this statement was susan's admission maybe we can't punch holes essentially suggesting that everything in the podcast might be accurate but Paul was the only one with all of the information. That gives Paul knowledge of what took place. Why else would they want to punch holes in it unless Paul actually knew what happened? When they retained attorney Mel Delamont to represent Paul in the summer of 1996, the Flores family were instructed to never discuss the events of May 25th with each other. And it's something they apparently adhered to pretty strictly. We never spoke about it, no. 
he, he's your son. He's been accused of murdering this girl. And is it your testimony that he's never talked to you about those things? Was this girl murdered? Or even? No. Even in Susan Flores' spontaneous 2021 interview with KSPY, she answers every question asked by reporter Megan Healy. Until this one, asked by an unseen cameraman. Well, thank you, Susan. I really do appreciate your Susan, candidness. Susan, I mean no disrespect by this, but as a parent myself, have you ever asked Paul or talked to Paul and asked him if he knows anything? The conversations that have taken place with, with him are something that will sit quiet until... Um, Unfortunately, we'll see where this is all going to lead. I think it should have been over with. So all those aspects are not up for discussion. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that anybody in our family has any answers to where she is or what happened to her in the final what has that question been like to Paul? How have you had to ask him, or, you, or is it something? And that's something. No, we're not. We're not going to discuss. The only topic not up for discussion was what Paul had told her about the night that Kristen Smart was last seen. And even though she says she's saving that answer for the court of law rather than the court of public opinion, when the matter finally got into a courtroom not long after that interview, Susan refused to testify saying through her attorney that she would assert her Fifth Amendment privilege to any and all questions asked. So what does the rest of the Flores family know about the night of Kristen's disappearance? And why won't they talk about it, even in private? As Detective Cole said, this even extends to using code words and initials anytime the topic comes up. She wanted to talk to you about, so, you know, KS. <laughs> But even with all of the secrecy and silence, Susan Flores admits that Paul knows what really happened to K.S. And it's enough for detectives to get new search warrants, to seize electronic devices from all four of the Flores family's homes on February 5th. And while they were looking for evidence of what happened to Kristen Smart, what they found on Paul's devices would change the course of their investigation. On a Dell desktop computer, seized from a sunroom in his San Pedro home. A folder titled Practice contained dozens of videos of Paul Flores digitally penetrating, raping, and sodomizing unconscious women in his own bedroom. Hard drives also contained thousands of sexually explicit videos and images of children, as well as commercially produced videos depicting intoxicated or unconscious women being raped. Because Kristen Smart was last seen in the company of Paul Flores in a heavily intoxicated state, the discovery of these videos was a key component in understanding how Kristen may have ended up incapacitated on the front lawn of the Crandaway house, just two hours after arriving there sober. During a follow-up search of Paul's home in April of 2020, investigators located two bottles of prescription medications. Flexeril, a water-soluble muscle relaxant, and tramadol, a canine pain medication, which has been used as a date rape drug in other convicted rape cases.
Both substances can cause unresponsiveness and amnesia, particularly when combined with alcohol. While investigators searched the inside of Paul's house that April, Detective Cole sat with him under a canopy in his yard. Paul and I talked about two and a half hours that day, not about the case, um, anything else, you know, football, trucks, cars, just trying to engage him in conversation. That was the first time I had ever been face to face with him. And once again, you know, he's he's cagey. He's he's cagey. He he knew why we were there. And at this point, we're now looking for more evidence to support what we found on the digital media. Sometimes he was aggravated um, when he found out he, we were taking another phone. He was very irritated. And then other times he would have a casual conversation with me about trucks and cars. Um, so he was up and down, but. Even though he would have a conversation with me, you could tell he was extremely on edge. Following that second search, San Luis Obispo Sheriff's detectives were armed with an abundance of video evidence showing that Paul Flores is a serial rapist. But with no direct evidence of Kristen Smart's murder, they passed off the case to LAPD and waited for Paul to be arrested. This next part of the timeline gets a little fuzzy. But to an outside observer, it seems that the plan was a one-two punch. Los Angeles would charge Paul Flores with a number of sexual assaults, and then San Luis Obispo would finally charge him with the murder of Kristen Smart, using the sexual assaults as evidence to show that Paul Flores has a propensity for raping intoxicated women, and one woman he was left alone with in 1996, who couldn't even walk without help, never made it home that night and never resurfaced. It would certainly help to narrow the reasonable doubt associated with a no-body homicide. Paul Flores was either the victim of a very unfortunate and very specific set of coincidences, or Kristen Smart died during the commission of one of his rapes. No one I spoke to wanted to discuss the specifics of what happened next, but for whatever reason, Los Angeles and San Luis Obispo did not end up coordinating their efforts. By the end of 2020, even with numerous rape videos where Paul Flores could easily be identified by his face, his voice, and the unique interior of his bedroom, LAPD hadn't charged Paul with any crime. They had managed to locate at least two of the women in those videos, who confirmed their identities and said they did not consent to what had occurred. And in the meantime, Detective Clint Cole was back in San Luis Obispo County, working on another case, the murder of Nancy Woodrum, a 62-year-old hairdresser who disappeared from her Paso Robles home. In 2018, Cole had elicited a confession from the suspect, a man who had been hired to paint the deck of Nancy's house, who then led Detective Cole to her decomposed remains. Six months after he raped and murdered her, and left her body in a field east of Santa Margarita. A preliminary hearing in that case took place in September of 2020, while LAPD was still working on their investigation of Paul Flores. And the team assigned to try Woodrum's killer in court were DA investigator JT Camp and a deputy district attorney named Chris Pavrell. When 2020 ended without charges filed in Los Angeles, the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office and District Attorney's Office began to rethink their strategy. If they combed through the case file again, 
maybe they could lay out enough circumstantial evidence to charge Paul Flores with murder on their own, without LAPD's help. And Detective Cole was doing everything in his power to convince the DA's office to assign Chris Pavel to the smart case. I was begging for Christopher Pavel to be assigned the case, begging. Um, I have worked with him on the Nancy Woodrum case. He's one of the few attorneys that I know that could have done what he did in this case. And in January 2021, he got his wish. Pavrell was only 39 years old at the time, four years younger than Kristen Smart would have been, and still fairly new to San Luis Obispo, though the case had been in his periphery since he arrived. So I moved to San Luis Obispo in April of 2017, and I heard about the case almost immediately. I remember talking to one of my friends who was a fellow deputy DA and say, hey, what are you working on? And he said, well, I've, I've got this uh, case that's really old and uh, and that was the smart case. And that friend ended up being Eric Dobroth, assistant DA. So that was a, an interesting dynamic in that my supervisor had handled the case prior to me. So when I first heard about it, it was it was there and in the office. Uh, didn't give it much thought. And then uh, I think it was 2018 when your podcast first came out. 2019. My wife was addicted. She she listened to every single episode as soon as they came out. She's like, Chris, you got to listen to it. You know, uh, Lambert's amazing. It's you're gonna love it. And I'm, I don't I don't watch crime shows generally, so I get enough of that at work. <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't. I have to confess, I didn't listen to it when she told me to. But that's when it kind of re-upped in my mind that hey, something's going on here. I don't know what's going on. Um, I had a couple of the cases I was working on. So I was a bit uh, distracted. And then I was assigned the case January 2021. My, my supervisor at the time, Eric Dobroth, he's the assistant DA, uh, he came by my office and he said, Dan, the DA wants to talk to you. So I said, sure. And so um, I go into Dan's office with Dan and Eric. And Dan says, you know, we have this case. It's uh, very important to the community. It's been around for a very long time. Um, we'd like you to handle it take the night to think about it and go talk to your wife and talk to your family. And I said, well, my wife's amazing. I already know what she's going to say. She's going to say, you have to do it. Um, you have to do it for the community. And so I just said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And he said, um, I'll give you whatever resource you need. Just have to, I just need you to ask me. And so that was it. The case file was in numerous boxes, both at the sheriff's department and at the DA's office. And so we started getting all of those boxes into my office and to organize them and just the sheer organization took days just to get started um, just to figure out do we have all the reports because i don't want to miss something and we had audio files and video files in the boxes so that the organization was daunting it started with with reading drinking a lot of coffee and reading as many reports as i could getting a debrief from detective cole from uh, Detective Nate Paul, who was on the case before him, um, talking to JT Camp, who started kind of reviewing the case concurrently with me to say, hey, what else can we do? Uh, talking with Eric Dobroth, who knew the case pretty well. And then um, listening to your podcast. And so I would listen to the podcast on my way to work, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time, just slowly going through the episode and then talk to Clint, you know, can we can we do anything else if you talk to this person that Chris has talked to and make sure we're talking to all the same people that we have everybody that we need lined up. 
So that's kind of how I got ready. Um, my office asked me to prepare a proposal for how we might uh, go about prosecuting the case, and so I did that. And just as in the Woodrum murder trial, Havrell partnered with Detective Cole and DA investigator J.T. Camp. My name is J.T. Camp, C-A-M-P. I am an assistant chief investigator at the DA's office in San Luis Obispo County. So J.T. was probably born to be an investigator on this case because he went to Cal Poly. I attended Cal Poly from 1991 to 1995. And he grew up in the Salinas area, so he knew everything about Monterey County, which was fortuitous. He'd been to Poly, so he's able to do all the portions of the walk and the dorms and has the case knowledge. I recall sort of the news of it, and I would have been about uh, 20, yeah, I would have been 23 years old then. I had some awareness, but nothing terribly um, you know, intimate or detailed, you know, initially. I knew JT before. We got along very well before, and that was a critical component of whoever was going to come work with me on the case is that we had to have a good working relationship. We could just talk to each other very easily, and we both bonded over food and coffee. We love going out to eat. We have very similar um, culinary tastes for the most part. I think we just like, you know, food. The same taste in food. I'm allergic to shrimp, and Chris wanted shrimp occasionally and uh, kind of forgot that part of it. And he's worked homicides before, and he has just a ton of experience. So for the first two months of 2021, the three started to review the boxes of evidence to try to piece together a prosecutable case. So the word puzzle is one that we use all the time. So any investigation is like a jigsaw puzzle. Some are small and some are enormous. This happens to be like a 10,000-piece enormous jigsaw puzzle. There's so many parts and pieces to it. Really, there's no way to actually kind of get up to speed because there's so much information that's contained in a decades-old investigation. This case, if you stacked everything up, it's probably two or three feet thick, maybe more. We wrote a 75-page summary, starting from Paul leaving his dorm to, at that time, what we knew, the behaviors at the party of Paul, the lies. And, and then that takes time for them to process and go through. It took us several weeks to write it, and that's using cut and paste from reports and stuff. So that was the first step. It was a lot of figuring out what the timeline looked like, who was at the party, and what led up to the party at Crandall Way, and then what happened after that point. People saying that, you know, there was plenty of interaction between Kristen and Paul, and then you have Paul during an interview saying that there was no contact or no interest. So for me, kind of painting the, the picture early on that, Paul was interested in Kristen. Um, I think that was proven out in testimony and in, in reports. And for me, I think that's an easy to paint the picture that there was there was something going on there, that there was some interest, for lack of a better word, a, a connection that Paul was, was interested. All the statements fly in the face of, of Paul saying that there was no contact, no interest, and that he really had zero interaction with Kristen other than helping walk her home. Walking up to the dorms, that was the first kind of really logical place to start. Homicide 101, when you first get assigned a case, you go to the crime scene because there's no better way to put a jury there through my words and my presentations than to actually be there myself, see the scene, smell the area around, what plants are there, look at the sites. And so the first thing I did was I did the walk. I went to 135 Crandall Way with uh, Nate Paul and we, we took a leisurely walk up the dorms. 
And what stood out to me was just how uphill it is. It's so hard to convey that unless you're actually there. And then once you get to that intersection where Paul claims he left Kristen, to get from that spot to her dorm, even in the middle of the day, not having had a, a drop of alcohol, I was out of breath going up that little portion of a hill. Just how uphill it was and just how preposterous it would be that Kristen could make it home on her own. There's just no way. So if there's no way, then, then the only truth is that Paul did something to her. As they continued to sift through boxes of reports, Pavrel grew increasingly confident that he could try this case as it was and win it. What were like the standout pieces that you thought, here are like the pillars of how I'm going to build this? Uh, Paul's lies, especially in his videotaped interview with Detective Hanley. Last time we talked to you, you had a black eye. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. And what did you tell us? I told you I got to play basketball. That's right. And where did you get it? In my car. What car? My Ranger. Oh. Ranger. When did it happen? On a... Uh, on, on Memorial Day or, or Labor Day, whatever it was. Monday? Yeah. Have about 2 o'clock in the morning. Why 2 in the morning? Because I was um, uninstalling my radio because I was selling my truck. Mm-hmm. And where were you working on your car? In my garage. garage? And how did you get the black eye? I hit the steering wheel. That's about it. But, but like, how often do people hit their eye in the steering wheel? So. Yeah, I, th- I thought that interview was very helpful in, in terms of painting a picture of, you know, what what was really going on. Paul's making a claim that he had no interest or no contact or no interaction with Kristen whatsoever was a huge part of it. You're not acknowledging any of this ever happened, and yet all these other people are telling us it did happen. I guess I had a black hat at that time then. It's like, well, it's like but, but I remember her walking away, though number of other people who really have no incentive to make that story up and were really kind of independent in their observations in many ways you know that just didn't make sense and it just outright wasn't truthful and just you know kind of the the overall behavior and the admission of telling little white lies or you know fibs or whatever when you lie to us right oh it's not really lies the fib it's so so minute it's not well well i guess you can call it little white lies but you know, I, I can't think of an instance where it would be more important to be truthful and honest you know, during a missing persons case at that point. Little white lies were indicative of much bigger lies, really. Anybody who's seen that video, you can tell he is on the verge of confessing, on the verge of giving it up. With her being so intoxicated, personally, if anything happened, I probably think it's an accident. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Personally, I think it was an accident. That's what I think. But I could be wrong. I mean, I could read you all wrong. He is is flippant about Kristen. You can te- you can tell he's callous and couldn't care less about this missing girl. I got a feeling that when we find her, things aren't going to go good for you. They'll go fine. He looked like a psychopath to me when I watched that video. But others involved with the case weren't as sure as Pavrel that the existing evidence was solid enough to bring to trial. And for a moment, the future of the case wobbled. But as he laid out all of the old evidence with the new, Pavrel watched a new angle emerge, a stone that was still unturned. 
a handful of new witnesses who all pointed out strange incidents around Ruben Flores's backyard, where avocado trees block the neighbor's view of an enclosed deck that was never searched. We were trying to develop more information, and you helped us with that by uh, getting enough information to write a warrant for Ruben's house. I wanted to get into Ruben's house a long time ago. So when you and I talked and David had moved out, that helped get us in there. Jamie Lynn helped get us in there. There was another lady, well, I don't want to mention her name because she was a potential victim, but you know who I'm talking about. And so those kind of things, we didn't know. His behaviors, you know, chasing people off. I know he chased you once or twice, but there's a lot of consideration before they decided to file charges. You have to have something fresh and new. And that's one of the things that your podcast helped us with. Stuff like those three people really helped us get into White Court. I wanted to get into White Court really bad. And finally, on March 15th, 2021, they had enough new evidence to execute a search warrant at the home of Ruben Flores. And as you already know, two cadaver dogs showed a distinct change of behavior under the deck which led to a ground-penetrating radar scan that turned up a six-foot by four-foot anomaly. And investigators started to dig. We were digging under the deck in the anomaly that the GPR people recommended, ground-penetrating radar. They were confident that it had been previously dug most likely twice. So we start digging down and we start seeing this unusual staining. You saw some of the pictures at trial. Um, I'll always remember this. I thought we were going to find her. Um, so I knelt down right next to where they were documenting these stains. Um, I truly thought for five or ten minutes that we found her. Um, obviously we did not. Kristen's body wasn't there but there's damning evidence that a body was buried there previously and removed cindy errington an archaeologist present for the dig says the unusual staining in the soil looks like a cadaver soak stain a suite of liquids left behind by the decomposition process of a body the strata lines that occur naturally in soil which should all be uniform and moving in the same direction are instead jumbled and out of order, and there are visible shovel marks from a previous excavation. The dark staining doesn't start until two feet beneath the surface, so it wasn't caused by something leaking down from above. It was caused by a buried object, which leaked outwards from the center. And the staining on the wall of the, the cement base of the deck, you can see the outline of a body like you can just see it and it's six feet long <laughs> and it's 12 inches high of all the things to be in that spot is that there's just there's just no way there's just no way the belief that all of these things could be coincidences or bad luck four trained cadaver dogs who each mistakenly alerted to your mattress and no one else's a years-long documented obsession with the rape of intoxicated women Collected by a man who didn't rape the intoxicated girl he walked part of the way home in 1996. 
a black eye from your steering wheel on the weekend that you were the last person seen with that missing girl? And now, an empty gravesite under the deck of the home you spent that same weekend at? Was getting to be enough to overcome the standard of reasonable doubt, even without a body? But there was one last piece that finally pushed the district attorney's office over the line. Before we were done, we took two soil samples. And it was actually Sheriff Parkinson's idea. The next day, I took him to the lab, Serological Institute lab in um, Richmond. And we presumptively tested them, and they were positive for blood. Well, you know that doesn't necessarily mean it's human blood. Then we did the Ceratex, and we found human blood in these stains. And then we went back, served another warrant, took a whole bunch more samples, sent them to Siri, and we got, I think, another 14 total samples of blood that was positive in the soil. Plus, the lab found fibers that were consistent with the clothes and shoes that Kristen was wearing. Those three things really pushed the case over the edge, in my opinion. It's good news for the case, but another frustrating blow for Kristen Smart and her family. If Kristen had been at Ruben's house, why did it take so long to discover that? Why, in the initial searches of Ruben's house, did they not discover that she was probably there at that time? It's a good question. They served a search warrant, I believe, in July of 1996. They had access to the entire property, the grounds. I don't know why the search went the way it went. I wasn't there. I believe she went straight to Ruben's house from the dorm. It, it just, I, I, I can't, exp I don't have an answer for that. It just, it didn't get done. More than two decades later, any DNA present in the blood had long ago been consumed by microbes in the soil. Prosecutors wouldn't be able to prove that the blood was Kristen Smart's. But the amount of circumstantial evidence is staggering. And after 25 years, it's now or never. You always hope for a little more and a little more and a little more. Um, and I think, you know, what pushed over the edge, I think it was, you know, a critical piece of information was the dig at 710 White Court. Once you have physical evidence and, you know, soil testing positive for blood, that's when you start tipping that scale. And I think that's what kind of pushed the, the needle, you know, far enough. The risk if you do it too soon, you know, quote unquote, is that you only get one bite of the apple. And, you know, what if the just a little bit more, a little bit more came after? Uh, you always want a little bit more. You know, that's, that's a pretty good thing to sort of push that needle towards a filing. On the morning of April 13th, 2021, sheriff's investigators showed up simultaneously to the Arroyo Grande home of Ruben Flores and the San Pedro home of Paul Flores and arrested them. So I went to San Pedro, to Paul's house. I wanted to be there with him. I, I'd never expected him to talk, but just in case, I wanted to be there. So I rode in the back seat of the patrol car with him from San Pedro um, up to Santa Maria when we got gas, when it was obvious he wasn't gonna talk. When I say he wouldn't talk, he wouldn't talk about anything. Not football, not anything.
I think by that time he had been well coached by his legal legal team. And then I took him, we took him to the county jail and booked him. But even with Paul and Ruben in custody, the investigation didn't stop. Detective Cole was still trying to figure out how and when Kristen's remains were dug up and where they were moved to. And now, combined with the gravesite and blood evidence, an eyewitness account of activity at Ruben's home four days after the electronic search warrant was served back in 2020 suddenly seemed to make sense. The night that Reuben, Susan, and her boyfriend, Mike McConville, decided to move a cargo trailer alongside Reuben's house while yelling at each other in the driveway and then stayed there overnight. I think she was relocated with that cargo trailer. Um, that cargo trailer has a door on the right side of it which makes that door completely concealed from the roadway or from the neighbors. And I think it was, because if you think back, when Megan Healy did the interview with Susan, what did Susan say? Today and yesterday's search, are you guys surprised? How are you feeling about that? No, I, I kind of thought they were going to come for the Volkswagen because when they came last year at my house, the officer that came had some pictures on his phone that were sent over to him from this garage. He had a couple of questions, and yeah, the Volkswagen was on there. So um, it didn't surprise me that they came and took it. They knew we would be back. So that was their mindset, in my opinion. I believe that's when the body was moved. Photos taken by Ruben's neighbor that night in 2020 paired with positive tests for human blood from the same yard, were enough to get a search warrant for McConville's trailer. It was seized from the side of Reuben's house just hours before he was bailed out of jail and later searched for evidence. Once we seized his cargo trailer, we found we used a chemical called Blue Star, which is similar, similar to luminol, which you hear a lot on TV. And just inside that right front door of the cargo trailer, was a very significant, obvious reaction. So Blue Star will react to human blood, human body fluids, and cleaning chemicals. The problem I had with the trailer was it was cleaned, and the Blue Star reacts to bleach. So why was this filthy trailer, this two feet by four feet portion, cleaned with the bleach or chlorine, and the rest of it was filthy? There's no other reason to clean that portion of the trailer unless Kristen was there and moved. Well, when I looked at it, it actually almost looked like a person laying on their side. I wrote a warrant for Mike McConville, Susan, and Ruben Flores' DNA. We had to get permission from his attorney, which we did. Detectives Cole and Camp out at the residence of Ruben Flores. Ruben opened the door. There he comes. Hello, Mr. Flores. Hello. He stood in the doorway with a table in it. You want to come outside or you want us to come in? Right there? Okay. Let me go grab some gloves. I forgot gloves. I went to get the gloves out of my car. In the meantime, Investigator Camp had given him the warrant. When I came back, he was reading the warrant. He says, a search warrant. That means what? That means that... We have a warrant for your body to collect your DNA. Yeah, okay. Nothing else. And, and, these, and these other ones? 
They're gonna. We're gonna be doing them next. Susan and Mike. Well, they haven't committed no felonies. Well, I can't respond. I can respond. I mean, I mean, I'm only the one who's been arrested. I can't respond to why we're doing it. He very clearly says he committed a felony. What he was saying amounted to a confession. I don't. Uh, I don't believe the fact that it was a slip up or some kind of verbal error or whatever. It it was a situation where we had made an announced visit. It was essentially an appointment. Um, so there was no stress or worry and really it had been set up um, to be as non-confrontational as possible. Neither Investigator Camp or I reacted to it until we got in the car and turned our recorders off. I said, did, did you hear what I heard? He said, oh yeah. Yeah, no, he said it. In my mind, in my opinion, it was 100% a confession that um, that he was he was involved. Pieces like this, a spontaneous utterance by Ruben Flores while collecting his DNA, served to further support the prosecution's theory that Ruben assisted his son in covering up Kristen Smart's death. At an arraignment hearing that May, all parties agreed to be ready for a preliminary hearing on July 6th. That first um, kind of hard timeline was the preliminary hearing that we knew was coming very quickly. That couple months, really just a few weeks, that that was when crunch time first started, was just figure out what the plan of attack is going to be and how we're going to get to prelim. Two months for a prelim of a case this magnitude is just lightning fast. It might not have seemed that way, <laughs> but very, very fast. And so the part that, that JT played was make sure we have witnesses subpoenaed for prelim. So I took um, one of my partners here at the Bureau of Investigation, and we basically printed out a map. And if we were working on Southern California, for example, we plotted out the map. If we're working in um, the Pacific Northwest or if we're going out of state, we just kind of figured it out. So everything was cold. Uh, we didn't prearrange any visits with anybody. Um, and we try to be very strategic about it. Um, a lot of weekend travel, a lot of after-hours travel, because we know people have lives, and they've got kids, and they have jobs, and they have stuff going on. Um, so we try to be very strategic about when we contacted people. But it was 100% in person. It was 100% unannounced. And um, figuring out who our 50 or 60 witnesses are, figuring out where they live, putting them on a map, and if it's drivable, then we're driving. If it's somewhere we have to fly and rent a car, then we're doing that drive. So he spent probably two months crisscrossing the country handing out subpoenas, making sure that the DA's office made a good first impression such that people would want to participate, which I knew would be really important. So JT made all these initial contacts, and a lot of them were surprised to hear that the case was moving forward. While never officially a cold case, it had been room temperature for a long time. When I first got the case, I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do anything with it. Um, it's, it's so large. It takes so long to get up to speed on it. So there was some, there was some time when I was like, this case is tough. You know, there's, it's a tough, it was a tough case. Probably around January of 20, when we started our wire, I started believing I started believing that we had a real shot at this. Once Chris got assigned to the case and, and JT, because we all work so well together, I, I thought 
I thought we could do it. I did. And upon being contacted, a lot of the witnesses asked the same question. What took you so long? There were some people that had been tracking the case for, you know, for a very long time. Some people had listened to your podcast. Um, some people tried to put it behind them and didn't want to think about it. So the responses from people were all, they're kind of all over the map. But I would say the vast majority were grateful that it hadn't been left in the in the past and left alone that it was still being worked on so it was a little bit of everything it was it was really a mixed bag we had people that they were surprised it had taken us so long um, because they had given statements there was there was so much paperwork that um, you know we had to go through that there were people that we contacted that had given a statement they hadn't been talked to in so long that it was is really kind of a surprise to them some of them their voices weren't heard many years ago some really didn't want to talk anymore because they've been talking so many times at the end i think people were all willing to come and say what they knew say it truthfully so that christian's voice could be heard and i think that was the kind of common goal that everyone had no matter what their feelings may have been over the course of you know 26 years Ultimately, the prelim ended up being delayed until August to allow the defense more time to go through the enormous amounts of discovery. I already discussed the gist of the prelim in People vs. Flores Episode 1. To recap very briefly, 22 days, 31 witnesses. And finally, a ruling that the prosecution had presented enough evidence to hold both defendants over for trial. But this is the first time I've been able to ask Detective Cole about the prelim, where he spent much of the time in the defense's crosshairs, from wearing a purple tie to show support for Kristen Smart, to a private hearing for a pitches motion, to determine whether he had acted inappropriately with a witness. So the pitches motion was my very first one in my entire career. So a pitches motion is uh, a motion that the defense makes to look at a peace officer's personnel file, uh, the defense, they thought that I was giving case information to one of our witnesses, and so that's how that started. The defense attacked me quite a bit on the stand about all that, and when they looked into my personnel file, there was nothing in it related to the accusation. Then, yeah, they appeared to let it go because it was never brought up at trial. And another thing that had bothered me since the prelim. A witness, who I learned had told Detective Cole in their first phone call two years earlier, that I had asked her not to talk to investigators, even though I had been at the sheriff's office earlier that same day, telling them the story she had shared with me, with her permission. I knew that was a misunderstanding, and I tried to explain it on the stand at the preliminary hearing, but due to the hearsay rule, they wouldn't let me. I knew it was harmless. It was frustrating for me to not be able to explain that properly at the preliminary hearing. Um, but I knew for a fact exactly what happened. Commander Paul and I knew. Um, when she called us, Chief Paul was in my office, and we're like, okay, no big deal. We know what this is about. And, and that was it. We never... I have to document it, you know, it's a homicide case, we document everything, but I never, we never had any issues with you or thought you were doing anything, that was strictly a misunderstanding. And it's something I was recently able to clear up with her too. I'm so relieved 
even more now than I was a month, like three weeks ago when we spoke. Yeah. It bothered me a lot. I'm so glad that we have cleared that up. This, like, it matters to me. Me too. The last thing I wanted to ask Detective Cole about was a moment during the prelim when defense attorney Harold Misick asked him a very open-ended question, which allowed him to basically lay out the whole case on the stand. What probable cause did you have for my the search warrant for my client? And, I mean, I almost giggled. I looked at Mr. Prevell, and, and he his eyes are bugged out, and he's kind of nodding his head at me like, this is your chance. So, yeah, we basically went from... May 24th of 1996 to the current times and then it was lunchtime and um, so we broke for lunch Mr. Misek was trying to once again say uh, no more questions so then the judge asked Mr. Prevell do you have anything further and he asked me were you done and I said no so then we went on another 10 or 15 minutes the whole case following the conclusion of the prelim the prosecution team hit the road again, following up on new leads and tips, re-interviewing witnesses, and making sure that everyone they needed would be available to testify at trial. After the prelim, we did basically a second tour around the country because there's no substitute for sitting down, looking somebody in the eye and saying, I believe you. And all I want is for you to tell the truth. You know, the prosecuting attorneys show up and, and have a conversation at a dinner table somewhere in the Midwest shows the level of dedication that, like I said, the office, the sheriff's office, um, our investigative team has. Because if, if people don't want to talk to you, then they don't have to. And so when they find out that you're willing to travel all that way, it shows that we're invested in the case because we've spent so much time coming to see them. People appreciate the respect. Even during the preliminary hearing, tips were coming in and they were documented and things would happen. So. An investigation, the prosecution is still kind of a living, breathing thing, and things happen even up to days of preliminary hearings and court dates where we're still getting tips and phone calls and emails and having to you know, look at them, document them, and if they're appropriate to look into further, then great, but you had to compartmentalize and, and just realize what was actually important and, and stay focused on that because there are so many distractions that can pop up and they do pop up so we traveled to texas we traveled to idaho we traveled to montana nevada southern california all over the place so hours and hours and hours and hours in the car with nothing to do but talk about the case and we did you know working all day and going back to a hotel room um we figured wasn't going to be super healthy in the end so we tried to ensure that we got some exercise. Um, we tried to ensure that we were properly caffeinated and that we ate well enough um, just so we could continue to do the job every day. So um, we went a lot of very early morning bike rides. We'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, go for a bike ride um, that could be anywhere from you know just 5 or 6 miles to maybe 8 or so miles with a coffee shop as a destination to kind of get some fresh air clear our heads, kind of um, set ourselves up for the day, discuss what the day looked like um, over a bike ride and over a cup of coffee. And um, when we got back, then we would start the day. You know, develop the same taste in music. What is your taste in music? We're both in our 40s, so it trends a lot towards alternative rock, a lot of... Uh, we listen to a lot of Morgan Wallen. 
classic rap, a lot of modern country, a lot of classic country. It was a lot of Morgan Wallen into work, out of work, driving from Idaho to the Pacific Northwest. Classic rock from the 70s, like if there was a soundtrack or a mixtape, it would have been a Morgan Wallen mixtape. We really ran the gamut. You had to kind of sum it up. Early morning bike rides, coffee, Morgan Wallen, and then figure out what you're going to have for dinner is, is uh, the plan B for most days, working around plan A, which was, what does work look like? So that, that's what it was like being on the road. Had some Morgan Wallen mixed in. And back in San Luis Obispo, Detective Cole was still working on another aspect of the case. When uh, Chris Prevell and Investigator Camp were traveling all over the world, <laughs> I continued to investigate the case. Back in 99, investigators sent a questionnaire to every single Cal Poly student. I mean, there were thousands, and I reviewed every single one of them, and I would read some of them, and it would say no pertinent information. And so we followed up with hundreds of people. We were able to find other witnesses who gave very valuable information at trial who had never been interviewed other than the questionnaire. That was my main goal, is just to keep trying to develop new stuff. Keep trying to put more puzzle pieces together, as Denise Smart says. In March of 2022, the defense filed a motion for a change of venue, which was granted. So that summer, the entire prosecution team moved into a Salinas hotel, away from their homes and families, for the next five months. We like our pillows we like our beds we like our comfort i think we find a lot of comfort in the the day-to-day routine for really a lack of a better way of looking at it that you know we we get set in our ways we've got our you know comfortable things around us we have our support um you know around us we've got family and loved ones or pets or whatever the case might be um so it's definitely a change um that i think we all had to adapt to um and there were certainly difficulties I mean, you're, you're kind of packing up and leaving, you know, a stable environment or a stable life and kind of stepping into a world of total unpredictability. Um, you don't know how it's going to go day to day. It's also temporary, um, and it's also fast-paced and chaotic and really such a grind that um, it seems like it would be super easy to just work and then, quote, take care of yourself and eat right and exercise and do all that stuff when all you have to focus on is work but it's it's actually harder to do um, than I think I estimated just because um, there was a lot of um, instability and unpredictability you never know what's going to come the next day um, and then with the stakes being so high um, a lot of things coming at everybody at one time and you know like, like you found, like everyone else found it's, it's not that easy just to pack up and go and move somewhere for a short amount of time and expect that everything's going to be super easy because it, uh, it, it was a difficulty. Deputy DA Pavrell, Investigator Camp, Detective Cole, a paralegal, and two victim witness coordinators lived in Monterey County for the duration of the trial. As a team, they dubbed themselves the Six-Legged Stool working in conjunction to ensure that they were organized and prepared for the months-long process. Part of this was organizing all of their investigative records, including interview transcripts, supplemental reports, photos, and other trial exhibits, 
into simple and chronological binders, sorted by witness name, with identical copies for each attorney. This meant that if Denise Smart was scheduled to take the stand, the prosecutors and defense attorneys could each pull out their Denise Smart binder and have any and all documents related to her testimony at their fingertips. Theoretically, all sides would have no problem being prepared for each witness's testimony. We had um, a paralegal in Becky Cripe that um, was just so ultra-organized and is able to make so much sense and keep all of us straight so that when Chris was going into court, he knew what he had to do. He knew um, you know, what information he needed, and it was there. Um, these were very long days hours upon hours of organization and just, you know, keeping things straight. And uh, that's, I would I'd point more to the, uh, just the phenomenal work ethic that, that Becky did. As the trial date neared, the court summoned 1,500 prospective jurors, which the prosecution and defense narrowed down to 36. The mechanics of seating a jury were so difficult because of the amount of time. You're talking three, four months potentially during summer. You're still talking about COVID concerns. Clearly, we lost people that fell sick due to COVID. You're working with vacations and who gets paid for jury duty, who doesn't get jury, you know, jury duty pay at their work. There's so many little things that go into it before you even look at the potential jurors that made it difficult. So I, I think difficulty was off the scale just by virtue of the length of the trial, the fact we needed two juries. In terms of looking at the people, I mean, ultimately what both sides want is someone that's going to listen to the evidence, not make any judgments, and, uh, you know, just kind of follow the rules that the judge gives them and listen to everything before they make any decisions. And that's, I think, what both sides want. Um, in any jury selection, you can tell people that really don't want to be there. Um, you have people that seem like they're maybe too eager to be there. Um, and I think ultimately what... A prosecution would want and what a defense team would want is someone that um, realizes it's their civic duty and it may be uncomfortable and it may be inconvenient but it's part of what makes the system work and you just want someone that's going to be fair and follow you know follow the rules the judge is laying down before them that's really all you can hope for and, and, and look for that's a really difficult task to do and you know you're talking to people in five and ten minutes trying to get a read on them you just hope in the end that you get 12, or in our case, you know, 18 times 2 that are enlisting the evidence and, and be fair and impartial and wait till they have all the information to make a decision. What's the experience like of having two juries in the same room? What did that do to the way you presented? It doesn't change the way you present the case other than you have to be more physically aware of where you are in the courtroom. So I was constantly trying to find the proper positioning to not block the jury in the audience or uh, the Smart family from being able to see. So there are very there are very few pockets where I could safely stand, if you will, from not blocking somebody's view. Because if a juror can't see the evidence or the testimony, then it's not going to be persuasive. With the two juries seated, the trial began on July 18th. And if you've listened to the podcast this far... You're now caught up on almost everything that happened, except... It was one giant verbal heartbreak. The all-star team of Paul's lies. Dozens and dozens of lies that were recorded. All I did was sit there and smile. Said, thank you, Bob. 
Paul did not face us. He faced the judge, face forward. He had on the mask. I hate birds. I like birds. I have nothing against birds. We weren't given everything that we needed to see and that we could have possibly found this person in another direction. The verdict could have gone another way. So hearing that, I mean, it just reminds me of like what I lost, you know. <laughs> your parents, Paul, have failed you. So has your legal team. Mr. Flores, you have been a cancer to society. Next time. Okay, so now that you've listened to the conclusion part one, we're going to listen to People versus Flores, the conclusion part two. This episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It has now been 1,370 Sundays since Stan and Denise Smart didn't receive a phone call from their daughter. They have been searching for her through 1,370 Sundays. But now you know where she was all along, Pavrel told Paul Flores's jury, pointing his finger at Ruben and Susan Flores, who were seated in the front row of the courtroom audience. She was under their deck. Pavrel's closing argument started at 10 a.m. on October 3, 2022. It was a summary of evidence he'd been working on for almost two years. So I started writing my closing as soon as I got assigned the case, because you have to know what your destination is in order to chart a path to get there. You, when you have a body, the body usually tells you what happened to that person. It gives you the manner of death. But without a body, you're really left with what is the actual truth about what happened. And felony murder gives you that ability to prove the case by proving a felony and with the logical inference. So I started thinking about it from that point forward. So my closing argument was based with that goal in mind. Felony murder and then direct murder as an alternative. Pavrel's first objective was overcoming the defense's trump card. Without a body... There was no proof that Kristen Smart was even dead, let alone that Paul Flores was responsible. It was a position that had worked for the Flores family this whole time, and still might. Have you ever asked your son about whether or not he was involved in the death of Kristen Smart? We've never discussed it as a death. Disappearance. Is this girl murdered? Murdered. No. She's missing. I know she was declared dead, but she's a missing person. There was proof that Kristen was dead, though, 
Poverell insisted. The Smart Family. Aside from having a standing family phone call every Sunday, which Kristen had now missed over a thousand times, it was absurd to believe that a 19-year-old freshman would disappear on a whim, drop off the face of the earth, and then successfully stay hidden for 26 years, missing birthdays and holidays, graduations and weddings, simply because she wasn't having a great time at Cal Poly for a few months. Or, even if she was pregnant, as the defense tried to suggest, based on rumors that spread in the aftermath of her disappearance, which were never substantiated. Both defense attorneys would also go on to concede several times in their own closing arguments that Kristen Smart was most likely dead, while maintaining that we just don't know. I've thought for a long time about how to recap these closing arguments. To read them all back word for word would take over 10 hours, but to skim through them would leave out important context. Reading them back, it's hard not to mimic their inflections and a little bit of their vocal characteristics, but reading them straight off the paper would rob them of their rhythm and impact. So this is going to be a long one, but I'm going to read verbatim quotes directly from my notebooks while summarizing the parts in between and do my best to capture the tone of the people speaking. Back in the courtroom, Pavrel laid out his case for the jury on the projector. You always put uh, your best evidence in your PowerPoint. PowerPoint's a crutch. I think mine was 97 slides. I don't know if you counted, which is, it's a lot. I've never done anything like that. But each slide has to have a persuasive impact. And hopefully I did that. There are no wasted slides because if a jury's looking at your PowerPoint, then they're not looking at you and you're missing out on an opportunity to connect with them. Hundreds of volunteers searched for Kristen Smart, Pavrel told the jury. But these defendants did not lift a finger because they knew where she was. The San Luis Obispo community moved heaven and earth to search for Kristen Smart. The Flores family moved the dirt under their deck twice. They treated Kristen's burial with less reverence than the family dog. The truth is, Kristen Smart is dead. She was plucked off the face of the earth by Paul Flores. Pavrel reminded jurors that two witnesses had testified that Paul Flores had set his sights on Kristen Smart weeks before the Crandall Way party. Steve, a friend who said he saw Paul standing in the doorway of Kristen's dorm room, where she looked cornered and uncomfortable. And Vanessa, who said Paul approached Kristen at two different parties that spring, and then proceeded to stare intently at her from across the room. Pavrel described it as a multi-month hunt. Kristen was too nice to tell him off. What everyone else saw as a nice person, Paul Flores saw as a bitch dick tease. In his predatory, vile mind, that's what he saw her as. Steve, who said he saw Paul lurking around the Mirror Hall dorms several times that spring, never saw him there again after Kristen's disappearance because his hunt was over. Several jurors turned to look at Paul, who sat facing forward in a white KN95 mask, expressionless. For months, Paul sat stoic, often staring straight ahead. Something jurors would note was consistent with the testimony of several witnesses, 
who described his eyes and his mannerisms, which often made them uncomfortable. Pavreau continued, There are no witnesses to what occurred in Paul Flores's dorm room, just like there are no witnesses to what Paul Flores did to Sarah Doe, to Rhonda Doe. They speak for Kristen. For me, it was the two does, where you really realize in, in an emotional, visceral, and real sense what happened to Kristen in a way that I could never argue it. The does, um, heroes who, who came in and withstood personal attacks, cameras and media, to say what happened to them because it was the right thing to do. Unbelievable heroes. When, when I looked over and I saw them realize this is what happened to Kristen, it, it, was, it was impactful. Pavrel explained, for crimes that happen in a bedroom, there are no witnesses. But ground-penetrating radar, a forensic archaeologist, and a lab supervisor tell us what Kristen could not. We don't have a full intact body in this case, but we have her blood. Justice delayed does not have to be justice denied. You now know the truth of what happened. Paul Flores is guilty as sin. Four trained cadaver dogs alerted to the scent of death on his mattress. Now, what would he be doing to Kristen Smart on his mattress? The same thing he did to Sarah Doe and to Rhonda Doe. How did you sleep during the trial? I didn't sleep much. Maybe five hours a night tops. Is that because you're laying awake thinking? Is it because you're overstimulated and not tired? Or what, what were you feeling? All, all of the above. All of the above. You lay awake um, thinking, um, going over the day's testimony, and then arguments will come to you. So then I will you know, get out my phone and take notes and say, okay, here's the arguments that came to me. And then in the morning, put those notes into my trial binder so that I had them. Because I didn't want to forget a single argument. I didn't want to forget. I was so worried I would forget something. So I slept kind of on the edge of consciousness so that if I had a good idea, I could get it right down into, on the paper and not forget it. Pavrel recapped the Crandall Way party on May 24th, 1996, and how Margarita had testified that she separated from Kristen sober around 10.30 p.m., how multiple witnesses testified to seeing Paul and Kristen talking to each other near the bar and seeing the two fall to the ground at one point. All things Paul told investigators did not happen. And how 90 minutes after arriving at the party, Kristen was passed out on the neighbor's lawn. Tim and Cheryl told you that Kristen could not walk on her own. There was zero chance she could walk uphill. But Paul claims he left her two football fields away from her dorm room to walk uphill on her own. A claim so clearly false, so clearly a lie, so clearly impossible. As he spoke, Pavrel occasionally gestured to the second row of the audience, and jurors glanced over to see Margarita, the last friend to see Kristen that night, Cheryl, the last person to see Kristen and Paul walking off towards the dorms together, and Jen, the first person in Mirror Hall to report Kristen Smart missing later that weekend. They were not required to attend the closing arguments, and the fact that they did seemed to be a testament to how much they wanted to see this case through to the end.
after 26 years of waiting. The jurors looked surprised to see them too, and I wondered if Pavrel had strategically seated them where he could point them out. I was surprised that they showed up. They, they sat where they sat. I was talking about, I think, Margarita and, and what she said, and I saw her, and so I pointed her out. It was all just spur of the moment. It's reading the room. A lot of it is just reading the room and seeing what's going on and reacting. Pavrel reminded the jury that everyone who knew her said Kristen would never leave to stay somewhere overnight without her red backpack and her makeup bag. On the projector, he showed them photos of those items collected from her dorm room, exactly where she'd left them before leaving her room that Friday evening to look for a party. He also published several photos that investigator J.T. Camp took inside of Paul's old dorm room during the trial, showing how the window opens and the screen flips upward on a hinge, allowing easy access from the back parking lot. Somebody pulled a car right up to that window. Polly was empty that weekend. Um, it would take maybe 20, 30 seconds. And this is not something that would have been particularly difficult for them to pull off. It was a theory I too had developed after my first visit to that dorm room, when the occupant showed me how they took their seven-foot surfboards in and out to avoid having to carry them down the halls. I tweeted my own photos of that window opening just a week before camp took the stand. And I got chills the first time they showed those photos to the jury, and again during Pavrel's closing. This and other familiar phrases had left me wondering for months, were they paying attention to the things I was tweeting and podcasting during the trial? And because of the gag order, and how good they were at avoiding eye contact with me that whole time, had my presence in the courtroom been a help or a nuisance? I, I love that you were there because I knew that um, I was going to get real-time feedback from you and that if something came up, we would find out about it. And what a blessing to have a a serious case where there are other people working to try and find your same common truth. I had a, a, a central trial binder that I kept with me every single day. And in the front of the trial binder, I had a list of my notes. And so from the day I got assigned the case, I do this with every case, as argument ideas come up, I write them down. So by the end of this case, I had about 20 pages worth of argument ideas and notes that it kind of accumulated over a year and a half. And JT would do the same. And so I asked him to, to listen to your trial updates and incorporate all of your arguments and notes into his. And then he gave me his. So I don't know which ones for sure uh, came from you. <laughs> I'll take whatever, whatever help is out there, you know, any, any good idea. I'm not saying I have all the good ones. And, and just put all the best ideas and arguments we have forward. Even just in terms of keeping track of what we actually just did, because there was such a massive amount of information that we're dealing with so many um, witnesses and it was such a, you have to really be on your game. Um, just in terms of looking at some of that information, you know, for example, that you had on your stories to recap our day, like, oh yeah, wait, that's what happened, you know, and, and you kind of forgot about it, kind of end the day with this is what it looked like today and uh, let's get ready to rock and roll tomorrow. So I'm not sure any case has ever had that type of immediate feedback because very few podcast cases have had the daily kind of updates from what I can tell. Um, so I've never had that before. Um, and JT and I looked at your Twitter feed, your, your Insta page just about every day. We looked at all of them just to see what, what people were thinking um, and gain some really invaluable insight into what people were finding particularly persuasive. And then we would highlight that in closing as well. 
So I, I thought it was a blessing to have you there. Um, how much did it bother you that I mispronounced your name for the first few? <laughs> sure it didn't bother me. I had a good laugh over it. Didn't bother me at all. Pavrel displayed Paul and Ruben's driver's license photos from 1996, describing them as strong and stocky and fully capable of moving a body together and digging a hole under their deck, despite the way they appeared in court today. Adela Morris testified that her dog Choya had the strongest alert she had ever seen on the mattress of Paul Flores. Her dog runs by every other room, every bathroom, every toilet, every shower, and only alerts on the bed of Paul Flores. Let's talk about the cadaver dog stuff because that's, I think, a unique part of this case. The defense called it junk science. Mm -hmm. What was your sort of take on the cadaver dog evidence? I thought it was very powerful. And when you have four dogs give strong alerts, I think most of them said these were the strongest alerts they'd ever had. You know, a dorm room is going to have all sorts of bodily fluids, if you will. And for the dogs to pass by 50, what, 50 to 100 dorm rooms, all of them, and not hit anywhere, show no alert anywhere, but go right to the same spot, it's, it, it's almost better than a human because the dog doesn't have a motive to lie. <laughs> like, dog doesn't know it. They don't speak, you know, handlers don't speak dog. You know, the dogs aren't friends. And to emphasize the significance of the dog alerts in Paul's room, Pavrel points out a detail that was easy to miss if you weren't paying attention. The difference in Paul's behavior between when he spoke to Officer Cudworth on May 28th and later that same afternoon when he spoke to Detective Kennedy. When Officer Cudworth first spoke to Paul Flores at the campus store, he said he didn't appear nervous. Later that day, when Detective Kennedy comes to his room, he notes that Paul's heart was beating out of his chest. Why was he nervous? Because days before, Kristen Smart's lifeless body laid on his mattress. Just as Pavrel and Camp had been compiling closing arguments throughout the trial, Detective Clint Cole had been taking notes too. Discrepancies between what Paul told campus police and what he told DA investigators. How Paul told his friends he got the black eye and how he told investigators he got it. One of my jobs in the evenings was to kind of write down inconsistencies with Paul's statements and stuff. And so I would do that and I went through our witnesses and just highlighted some stuff and so that he could put that in a format that was easy for him. Jeremy puts him in a Royal Grande on Sunday when he saw that bruise under his eye. What did Paul Flores tell him? He just woke up with it. There is no reason to lie to your best friend. Paul admits the story he told investigators about his black eye was a lie, a little white lie, a fib. If you're willing to lie about that during a homicide investigation, what else did he lie about? Pavrel reminds jurors that Paul told four different versions of how he got that black eye. He just woke up with it. He got it in a basketball game. He was pushed at a party, and he hit it on his steering wheel while removing the stereo in his truck. And like I told you earlier, the best evidence were Paul's lies. Dozens and dozens of lies that were recorded, both audio and on video. And I know I had slides which listed all of them, 
and then I pulled out the best, like the best of the best, the all-star team of Paul's lies that were just so ridiculous, so absurd, so offensive to play them again because juries hadn't heard, this was what, October? They hadn't heard these lies since July. And Pavrell replayed several portions of Paul's two recorded interviews, like this one with Cal Poly campus police, where he claims not to know how he even ended up walking with Kristen that night, just five days before, even though Tim and Cheryl both remembered it clearly. How did you, uh, let's go back to the party and kind of go in forward motion here uh, from the point that you were leaving the party uh, and you joined up with Roxy and the other people. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how we wound up walking together. How did you end up getting together with uh, Kristen? I don't even know. Just, you just have them, they were walking one direction. Yeah, and you, that, that's all. I, I, I don't remember if we walked from the front door with them or, or if I want to, you know, with like, or like, like a couple houses down. I don't, I don't even remember. Okay. Or this one, where Paul tells them he threw up right when we got back. I want to phone up later on. So. Okay. okay. What time was that? What did you get to? Right when we got back, pretty well much. Pavrell tells the jury when he's interviewed by the investigators he claims that someone saw him in the dorm shower that morning did anybody see you come into the residence hall no um, I saw someone when I went to the bathroom it's like uh, I don't even recall who it was okay this is when you were getting sick yeah yeah okay. you need to think about that Paul yeah we need to find that person yeah that'll be my alibi this person is going to be an alibi if it comes down to that i'm not uh, saying you need yeah. an alibi but this person is going to put you in the hall okay? yeah uh don't go out and make this up don't go out right. and, and promote somebody right. to lie for you okay what we need is we need the name of that individual and says he could remember the time if he looked at a tv guide if i see a tv guide i, I could tell you because of because of what shows i would have been watching okay I don't even remember what's on Friday night. Okay. Okay. Well, when you go back to the residence hall, look it up. Okay. Let us know. Paul never provides that TV guide or that alibi witness because there is no alibi. Because he was murdering Kristen Smart. And he plays back portions of Paul's police interviews that contradict interviews with Cheryl, Tim, Ross, Eric, Matt, Kendra and several other people present at the Crandallway party about Kristen's level of intoxication and ability to walk on her own. Things that don't make any sense to lie about when there are that many witnesses to call your bluff. Based on you walking with her, do you think she can walk up to Taco Bell again? So it's, it's, I remember, I, I don't remember her stumbling or anything, so so I, I, I walked that far, I think I walked all the way up to like Broad Street over by Orleans Bowl before when you were drunk. No, sober. Sober, okay. I mean, she was pretty drunk. You think she could walk up that far? Yeah. When you were walking, were you helping her physically walk home? No. She wasn't leaning on you? No. She was walking just fine a couple of times to give her a hug when she said she was cold. But see, Tim knows how drunk Roxy was too. So that's why... Cheryl asked you when she just before she left. She says, "Are you going to walk her to her dorm? Make sure she gets in her dorm." And you said, "Yes, I am. I'm going to walk her to her dorm." Because Cheryl said she wouldn't have left 
and gone home, if she didn't, if, if she thought you were just going to let her walk by herself, Cheryl would have gone with her. But she said you assured her, promised her, that you were going to walk Roxy to her door, make sure she got in, because she was that drunk. I have no idea if they were saying that, or well, even the conversation even took place. Well, I, I know it took place. I mean, we know it happened because Cheryl and Tim told us. See, what we're having trouble understanding is why you're not talking about this. I have no idea it even happened. Well, that's that's what concerns us. It's a balance between playing the whole trial over again, but really kind of refreshing them of just how damning those two interviews were, and really heartbreaking that Ruben's jury didn't get to see them. Just, uh, just heartbreaking, really. Pavrel then moved to more recent events. Then we have Jennifer. She told her roommate Justin in 2002 what Paul had said to her. Justin, probably the person who knew her best at that time, believed her. Her boyfriend Brent, who the defense actually called, corroborated everything she said. I had a big smile on my face. Because he corroborated everything that we had said, that you had said, and she had said. And all I did was sit there and smile. Said, thank you, Bob. Ruben Flores has made a multi-decade effort to guard his yard. He doesn't want Stan Smart anywhere near his deck. When Angie goes to visit, Ruben and Paul redirected her away from the deck. He wouldn't even let a plumber go under the deck. Pavrel published photos of Ruben's backyard. When law enforcement serves a search warrant and takes these photos of Ruben's yard on February 5th, 2020, they know that time is ticking. They had to move Kristen's body. That's when Jamie Lynn sees them park the trailer alongside the house four days later. They even have to take a fence down to get it back there. The deck and lattice made for the perfect hiding place. Ground-penetrating radar found an anomaly under the deck that was six feet by four feet, large enough to contain a human body. That area just happened to contain staining consistent with a human burial site. The stratigraphy was disturbed. It means the soil has been dug up before. A hole was dug, something leaked, and then the hole was dug up again and refilled. Cindy Arrington testified that this hole was dug by hand because there were no mechanical marks. There was no feathering pattern consistent with a plumbing leak. There were no ferret or primate bones or carcasses. Angie Butler has used the HemeDirect test over a thousand times. It's a binary test. It's either blood or it's not. Multiple red and black fibers were found in the sticky parts of the soil. And what was Kristen last seen wearing? Red tennis shoes and black shorts. The fibers were found compacted and embedded in the same soil that tested positive for human blood. Faye Springer said she could do a fiber comparison if she had the clothing that Kristen was wearing that night. But we can't do a comparison because they're still holding on to the body. Pavrel shouted, pointing to Ruben and Susan Flores in the audience. How did you decide which witnesses you didn't need to call? What, what was the strategy for excluding witnesses? So the strategy of putting on a case is to put on a case in a coherent fashion, but that gives you a, a narrative to understand what happened. 
this was an attempted rape of a person who was too intoxicated to consent. So all the witnesses at the party had to do with either Paul Flores being attracted to Kristen or Kristen being too intoxicated to consent. Why weren't Susan Flores, Mike McConville, Irma Linda, Brett MacArthur, why were they not subpoenaed as witnesses? Why did they not have to testify? Susan Flores was sent to subpoena but took the fifth. Um, Irma Linda filed a motion to quash her subpoena at preliminary hearing, and I decided that given the direction I was going at trial, I did not need her to testify. And same thing with Mike McConville. I did not need him to testify. You know, they also, other uh, than Susan, didn't show up to the jury trial either, which speaks volumes. Pavrel explained to Paul's jury, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you with an abiding conviction that the charge is true. All sorts of things are possible, but not reasonable. Everything in life is subject to some doubt. But is what the defense is arguing reasonable? 19-year-olds do not spontaneously die and hide their own bodies. Pavrel pointed out that the very fact that Paul and Ruben scrambled to get rid of Kristen's body and keep it hidden, rather than calling for help, is proof that they were trying to destroy evidence of a rape or murder. The human body, he explained, provides critical evidence. Destroying or hiding evidence is called consciousness of guilt. It means the person knows they're guilty. The only reason to hide a body is if you murdered someone. Luckily, the law does not require a body to convict someone of murder. Why reward someone for successfully hiding a body? Pavrel then explained the California law, which says that a death which happens during the commission of a felony or attempted felony qualifies as first-degree murder. To prove attempted rape, you have to believe that the defendant intended to commit a rape and took one step towards the commission. You heard about two other rapes committed by Paul Flores. Rhonda Doe was raped by Paul Flores in Lawndale in 2008. As she was leaving a bar with friends, she said Paul appeared out of nowhere and then asked her to walk home with him. Sound familiar? Once they got to his place, she asked for a glass of water, and after that, things started to get hazy. She remembers going in and out of consciousness. She remembers a red ball gag being shoved into her mouth while she was raped and sodomized. She identified his unique driveway from photographs, and she identified Paul Flores in the courtroom. She said she would never forget his eyes. Sarah Doe said she met Paul at a bar in San Pedro, where he was staring at her all night, just like Margarita and Vanessa testified he did to Kristen. Later in the night, while she and her friends were leaving, she said he appeared right behind me. Just like Tim and Cheryl testified, Paul had appeared out of the darkness as they were starting to walk Kristen back to her dorm. Once he got Sarah back to his place, he got her a drink from the kitchen before she was raped repeatedly and had a red ball gag forced into her mouth. He even followed her into the shower and raped her again. She suffered jaw pain for days and had bruises all over her body, including her arms, shoulders, and thighs from being held down. The next morning before she left, she told them, when somebody tells you no, that means no. And Paul hung his head in shame. 
If you believe either one of these women, it shows that Paul was inclined to commit rape. You're allowed to consider this for the limited purposes of deciding whether Paul acted with intent to commit a rape in this case. Paul Flores had a common plan or scheme to rape intoxicated women by separating them from others who could help them and returning to his residence with them. There is no doubt that Paul Flores raped these women. These women tell you what Kristen cannot. Once we had the Jane Doe's, it really made clear what the truth was. I mean, it, it was just so crystal clear from not only the two who testified, but you know, other information that we had, that this is what happened to Kristen. Trevor told you he was roofied in 2012, and he told you that after that experience, he thought back and realized that's exactly what he saw going on with Kristen Smart that night. He never saw her drinking or smelled any alcohol on her. What I am asking of you is accountability. I ask that you render a truthful verdict. As Pavrel took his seat, Judge O'Keefe asked defense attorney Robert Sanger if he was prepared to begin his closing. I didn't realize he was going to be that quick, Sanger said laughing. Let me just start up my computer. Sanger stood, removing his mask, and addressed the jurors. You have a pretty straightforward job. You have to decide whether or not a murder was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. Short answer, it was not. I'm not ready with a PowerPoint yet. I will be in a bit. But after hearing Mr. Pavrel, I have to respond to what he said. Basically a bunch of conspiracy theories. If you believe Mr. Pavrel up to this point, you probably believe I'm rude or something. That's okay. Conspiracy theories can be fun. We love to hear them. We like to watch shows and you think, I bet I know what happened. But you're here as jurors. You took an oath that you would follow the rule of law. Mr. Pavrel said that Mr. Flores is guilty as sin. That's his opinion. His opinion is not evidence. What's evidence is what came in through the witnesses. So what I'm going to do is, I've got to hook up my computer. But there are a few things he said that I want to just address right away. He repeated the phrase, dick tease, eight or ten times. Why? Because that evokes passion. He wants you to hate my client. You must not let bias, sympathy, passion, or speculation influence your decision. You can't just say, boy, I don't like Paul Flores, and I feel sorry for the Smart family, and therefore I'm going to convict. A lot of the people who testified were not interviewed right away. They probably feel that they're being truthful, with the exception of Jennifer, but we'll talk about that. But the others say, yeah, we saw all the publicity in the case. Then they talk about Paul Flores. They didn't know Paul Flores. More insidious are the people who inserted themselves into this case. Dennis Mahan, Chris Lambert, they had theories. For those of you who think I'm being unfair, you're free to do that. That's fine. Mr. Pavrel really is trying to bootstrap a murder where there really is no evidence of one. A direct step requires more than just planning a rape. A direct step has to show that the plan was put into action. Walking somebody home is not a direct step. I mean, just think about it for a moment. If this was an attempted rape, then everybody who had a drink in college or was someone at a bar, you know? Sanger didn't finish the thought and was still attempting to boot up his laptop. He continued. One of the things he's emphasizing now is this adoptive admission. 
he says, referring to the wiretapped phone call, where Susan Flores told Paul that he was the one who could tell her where holes could be punched in the podcast. Quite frankly, I think it's grasping at straws. You can decide. The defendant has to have heard it and understood it. You had one snippet in all the calls they tapped. One snippet. Let's see if I can do something else really quick before I ask the court to take a break so we can hook up the computer. Um, Mr. Prevrell told you, you know, Kristen Smart would never leave her backpack or her makeup bag. But then we have the testimony of Philippe, who said that Kristen Smart went to his room whenever a man was present. Okay? Sanger then asked for a two-minute break to turn his laptop on. I have it all plugged in, but I don't know what's going to happen when I push the button. Jurors were sent into the hallway while Sanger hooked up his laptop to the courtroom projector, and after nine minutes, they were let back into the room. Sanger started to talk about his PowerPoint presentation, but his lapel microphone wasn't turned on, which several jurors alerted the bailiff to. Sanger flicked the switch. There we go. What I was saying was, Mr. Prevrell likes to put a big San Luis Obispo district attorney seal up at the beginning of his PowerPoint. So I put a big SS&D logo up on mine, he told them, referring to his law firm. Either way, that's not evidence of anything. Pavrel looked down at the floor, shaking his head, as Sanger moved to the first slide of his PowerPoint presentation. So, it turns out, um, and I'm not making this up, a defendant in a criminal case is presumed to be innocent. Now, Mr. Pavrel told you all about reasonable doubt. We're not talking about imaginary doubt here. You're not all dreaming, and then you're going to wake up and there was not a trial. That's not what this is. I want to point out, this is a sad case. This is a sad case. You had all the appeal to emotions about so many Sundays. She was engaged in some adverse behavior. Whatever happened to her, it was certainly some untoward behavior. She didn't want it to happen to her. It'd be nice to just preserve this idea that everything was fine and she was angelic. But the reality is she engaged in at-risk behavior. And you have to interpret how that affects the events that may have transpired. Mr. Pavrel wants to say that Mr. Ted Bolter really didn't smell any alcohol, Sanger said, presumably referring to witness Trevor Belter. She was intoxicated long before. She was kissing a number of different guys and doing a number of different things and falling down, all right? Mr. Prevrell put up a nice picture of her, but remember, that was a high school picture, and that's fine. But remember there was another picture you saw? Sanger was reminding the jury of a photo of Kristen taken at Cal Poly, with her hair dyed brown. Aside from her hair color, it's unclear how Sanger thought that photo might give jurors a different impression of her. He continued, You can't say, oh, I hate Paul Flores after all the things that Mr. Pavrell said, and you can't say, I feel bad for the Smart family, which I think we all do, but you can't say you're going to convict him because of that. Mr. Pavrell said in his closing argument just now, which kind of surprised me, maybe it surprised you too, he said that Kristen Smart was buried out in Wozna. Pavrell shook his head, and Sanger went on. Saying that Wozna is right next to Arroyo Grande is like saying, oh, Pebble Beach is right next to Salinas, which I don't know. I'm not from here. Sanger paused and smiled at the jurors. I'd like to be. I'd like to take a vacation here. He laughed, 
but the jurors didn't. And then we heard from Jamie Lynn, who takes pictures from her bathroom window because she really doesn't like Ruben Flores. She's sick of all the honking and all the people driving by, and she wants to get him out of there. She doesn't call the police. She calls Jim Murphy, the smarts lawyer who's been suing the Flores family for all these years. She gets the podcaster, and they tell Detective Cole to come down so they can give him this info. It's a very strange story, and we'll get into that. We had dogs alerting all over the place in this case. They alerted at the Performing Arts Center. They alerted at an administrative building. Pavrel objected that this misstated the evidence, but was overruled. Sanger corrected himself. Okay, so I'm pretty sure we heard testimony that they alerted at the Performing Arts Center, and they alerted at an administrative building. Pavrel continued to look at the floor, shaking his head, which Sanger pointed out for the jury. Mr. Pavrel isn't satisfied letting me argue. He's going to shake his head. Pavrel lifted his eyebrows and nodded. Your Honor, that's totally inappropriate. Judge O'Keefe instructed Sanger to move on. He turned back to his PowerPoint presentation, accidentally unplugging a cable from the projector, which Paul reached down to plug back in. Sanger then moved to the topic of cadaver dogs. There's a lot of junk science that gets into court. There were false alerts and dog behavior all over the place. If these dogs had alerted up on a hill somewhere and some student had been seen up on that hill, Mr. Pavrel would be asking you to find that student guilty and ignore all the other alerts. It was an interesting aside from a defense attorney to claim that the prosecution would follow the evidence rather than focusing only on Paul Flores. And Sanger continued to jab at the prosecution in ways that often seemed to confuse the jury more than convince them. You all got a 20-minute law school course this morning. More like an hour-long law school. If anyone's ever seen Saturday Night Live back in the day, you remember Father Guido Sarducci? He would give a five-minute university crash course. Most of you are too young to remember. And with analogies that often seem to undermine his own position... At one point, while explaining the difference between direct and circumstantial evidence, Sanger suggested that even if the jurors looked out the window and saw it raining, it wouldn't be proof that it actually was raining. You just don't know, he told them. You heard that there was a lot of publicity. You had posters, you had rumors, innuendo, all sorts of things. We know that there was a lot of press. That's the elephant in the room here. I don't think I went through them. Um, there was Dateline, 48 Hours, 2020, America's Most Wanted, the podcast, plus local news. There was the website, Son of Susan, and there was your own backyard. And you heard witnesses testify that your own backyard wasn't biased. But there's one episode titled Son of Susan. Sanger said the media coverage of the case which he described as unending, as well as local elections for the sheriff and district attorney, were directly responsible for Paul's arrest. It's just made their life completely miserable for 25 years. You heard that there were rocks thrown at their house, and then 2017 leading up to 2018, which is an election year for the sheriff and the DA, there's all kinds of activity in this case. And then 2021 leading up to 2022, there's suddenly arrests. He seemed unprepared. He did some victim blaming. 
really didn't say anything, in my opinion. And, and that was kind of how I felt about a lot of the stuff in the trial. It was it was more drama than legal, if that makes sense. With Jennifer's story, there's all sorts of things, Sanger said, talking about the woman who testified that Paul Flores told her in 1996 that he had buried Kristen Smart under a ramp near his place in Wasna. First of all, Jennifer says she's colorblind, and then she says, oh, the truck was blue or green. Detective Cole said he tried to corroborate Jennifer's story, and he wasn't able to do it. Detective Cole disputes this. Her story was corroborated on that they would frequent that skate ramp all the time. She did live in Wasna. We did confirm there was a skate ramp near the location where she said there was one. So we, we corroborated her story as much as we could. Is it her fault that the guy she was sitting with at the skate ramp when Paul said this is dead? He made a big deal about that, but they couldn't find out anything about it. You know, that, that was not fair. Uh, we did corroborate Jennifer's story. One remarkable aspect of Sanger's closing was that his position on Detective Cole, who he had previously accused of focusing on Paul as the only suspect, intentionally leaving out exculpatory evidence from his affidavits, and even inappropriately leaking information to witnesses, suddenly did a 180 after his cross-exam the week before. Now, he heaped praise on Detective Cole every time his name came up, calling him a straight shooter who was thorough, cooperative, and honest. I didn't like hearing that from him. He wanted me to impeach some of Jennifer's statements, which meant nothing to the case. I think he thought I was going to be dishonest in my testimony. Jennifer did bring up a prospect in my interview with her, but that had nothing to do with the, the, the murder. And when I testified to the truth, it seemed to humor him or because I just thought it was almost borderline unprofessional what praising me because I spoke the truth on stuff that had nothing to do with the case. So that's, that was how I felt about that. I, I didn't like that at all. Sanger continued to briefly list issues he found with each witness's testimony. Steve said he was running by Kristen Smart's dorm room on his way to practice, and he's running, and he's still able to say Kristen Smart was uncomfortable and Paul Flores is a nasty person and all that. The archaeologist Cindy Arrington, when she testified she was very teacher-like, but then she couldn't answer questions on cross-exam. You saw it. Rhonda Doe was a really weird one. Sanger said, referring to one of the two women who testified that Paul raped them. 25 years later, she says, Oh, I saw Paul Flores at this bar and I didn't know what happened and I was raped. Then it came out on cross-exam that she had lived in Arroyo Grande when all this publicity went on. So many of these people who testified, so many of them were associated with the website Son of Susan, or they've talked to the podcaster Chris Lambert. I think we heard that he was something like seven years old when this happened. He's inserted himself into this case that he had nothing to do with and came up with all sorts of conspiracy theories. Judge O'Keefe asked Sanger to pause for an afternoon recess at 3 p.m. and resume the proceeding 20 minutes later. So we talked about influences of various people, 
about Mahan sending Detective Cole on various fruitless endeavors. The fact is that people who were subjected to McMahan or Chris Lambert were going to receive a lot of misinformation. A note here that I'm using Sanger's pronunciation for accuracy. When he says Mahan or McMahan, he's referring to Dennis Mann, the volunteer who moved from North Carolina to San Luis Obispo in 2001 to pressure the Flores family into speaking with investigators and who started the website sonofsusan.com soon after. Sanger continued, conceding for a moment. It's true that, unfortunately, something probably did happen to Kristen Smart along the way. And that is sad. Jennifer was here under oath on the stand and trying to convince you, oh, I'm just a normal person. Oh my goodness. Oh, motorcycle gang? I'm a girl. I don't know. Sanger's two-sentence recaps and condescending impressions of witnesses' voices earned looks of aggravation from the prosecution team. Then Detective Cole testified that in late October, they planned to leak info about the trucks. But then Mr. Pavrell makes him look at his notes and he says, oh, it probably happened closer to January. Well, okay. But then you have Mr. Lambert at some point coaching a witness to say she saw a 4x4 white truck because he saw a 4x4. I won't spend a lot of time on this accusation, but the phrase coaching a witness was intended to make the jury believe that I fed information to Jennifer to influence her testimony in some way. In reality, I was first shown Ruben Flores' 1985 pickup truck, which isn't a 4x4, in January of 2020. And by that point, I'd had no contact of any kind with Jennifer for more than two months and wouldn't end up speaking to her again until February of this year, months after the trial ended. Then you heard all about the supposed lies about this black eye. When young people get a black eye, what do they say? Oh, I don't know. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. He was very straightforward about everything else. Even if these things make you wonder, Mr. Pavrell wants you to wonder. It's not proof of a murder. Anyway, the dog handlers use a lot of lingo like in odor. What's in odor? That's the imagination of the dog handler. I don't want to disparage these people because they're volunteers. It's a noble thing. It's something like playing golf, only it's more significant. It's wonderful. They got certified by their own private group, which is one of many groups all over the country. Adela Morris started a new group, which I think she uses to make profits. Somebody said that. But she admitted that dogs would alert on vomit. We got to come back tomorrow. I got to talk about the so-called blood evidence, etc., but I'm going to keep going. He shuffled through his papers. So I think what's going to happen next is we're going to break here and we'll come back tomorrow and talk about the other evidence you heard. Judge O'Keefe addressed the jurors. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have you return tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. As we stood up to leave, I noticed that several members of the public, the media, and the Smart family were no longer in the courtroom. The next morning, Sanger resumed his closing argument at 9.13 a.m., beginning with a question that had been submitted by a juror the previous afternoon. We got a juror question yesterday. I don't think we've ever gotten a question during arguments before, but that's okay. One of you asked about the testimony of Adela Morris. I had said in my argument that she said dogs would alert on vomit. This juror wanted to know 
Is that right? Did she say that? That's your job, is to go through the testimony and figure things out. I think she may have said, I don't know, or some words to that effect. So it hasn't been ruled out. I actually thought she said they could alert on vomit. The point I want to make is that whatever we say, we say. And it's your job to figure it out. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. We don't have to have a theory. It may seem unfair, but it's not unfair. This is the way the law works in this country. It was a jarring way to start the second half of a closing argument. Admitting that everything you've been saying up to this point, and the rest of what you're about to say, is just noise for the jury to sift through, to determine what's true and what's not. So let's start with the other acts witnesses, Sanger said, referring again to the two women who testified that Paul Flores raped them. First of all, the other acts evidence, or uncharged acts evidence, is a little weird. What that does is if there's not a sex offense proven in this case, you must disregard all those other allegations. What it allowed was for Mr. Pavrell to find all these other people and have them say, oh, I had unconsented sex with Mr. Flores. Doesn't matter. So the two witnesses, if they are telling the truth and that's really what happened and Paul Flores took advantage of them, that's wrong. That's bad. That's not your job. Mr. Pavrell made as much as he could out of it. All of a sudden, Rhonda Doe says, Oh, I saw him on television, and I just thought I'd tell you what happened now for some reason. Gee, out of the blue. Wow, what a coincidence. They were exposed to the media. 25 years of it. But there's a real reason to ask. Why didn't she tell her story before? She was out there back in 1997 with all this publicity. She also described his house as being near railroad tracks, but it was a couple blocks away. You can't just pick the facts that you like and say, oh, it's proven. We know that she was exposed to it from 1996 on. It's too much of a coincidence, Sanger said, without a hint of irony. Then we had Sarah Doe, who was a more sympathetic witness, I think. I showed her her social media. I don't remember which one. I'm too old. I should stop doing this if I can't remember all the social medias. The point of the story is, she posted pictures in 2012 of bruising. I think she said, oh, it was family members or something. But she didn't post any bruises and say, oh, I had this encounter with this guy. There's no proof they weren't exposed to the media and all this stuff. Even about ball gags. I mean, who knows what's out there about Paul Flores? So let's go back. Oh, there's one more thing on the ball gag. Nothing in that picture you saw shows that there was any sex crime. Just that Mr. Flores supposedly it's on his computer, supposedly owned a red ball gag. I frankly don't know what color ball gags come in. Sanger then moved back to 1996. So we know that the young women in the dorms talked back and forth and started speculating on some things, like Paul Flores. That's what was going around at the time. We know she went to the party that night because people saw her there. We know that she was very tall and dressed in a way that people would remember her. She was kissing guys, doing some things. She went into the bathroom with Ted Bolter. She could have gone off and decided she wanted a different life. There are those cases where that happened. It's sad that Kristen Smart disappeared, and she may have gone out on her own, but who knows? It's sad. I agree she's probably dead. It seems as if most likely something probably happened to her, and it's unfortunate. But what was it? We heard from Vanessa 
She was interviewed by the FBI after Kristen Smart went missing, and she didn't say anything to the FBI about Paul Flores. Well, she said at some point she didn't know Paul Flores by name, but later she knew who he was. Margarita had posted on the Justice for Kristen Smart page, which was dedicated to convicting Paul Flores. She also appeared on the podcast, so she spoke to Chris Lambert. So what did he tell her to say? I'm not saying anyone's getting up here and lying. They may believe what they said. We just don't know. Now we get to the overzealous Steve. There's something wrong with Steve. And he was a police officer, though I don't think he quite did his 20 years, something like 16 years or something. He was making this point that, oh, look at me, I'm black. I was scared to talk to the police. Only he's this giant guy and everything. You saw him. He wasn't scared of the police. He didn't actually know who Paul Flores was. He said he saw Paul Flores hanging out around Muir Hall on the second floor. He lives on the third floor. What's he doing on the second floor? He creates this whole story that he saw Paul Flores in there and Kristen Smart didn't want him in there and what? How would you perceive that from running by the door? And then on the stand, he said, yeah, I can't be 100% sure it was Paul Flores. You heard that. So then we go to the party witnesses. I'm not here to embarrass Kristen Smart or be unkind to her family or anything else. That's not my job. But again, the prosecution brought these witnesses out. Kendra said there was not only booze at the party, but I think she said her friend even had a bottle of Bacardi with her. She didn't know who Paul Flores was until all the publicity. She followed the podcast on Instagram and was even on the podcast. We know Chris Lambert gave people information and there were rumors on the podcast and all that. And she eventually even agreed that Chris Lambert's bias was to convict Paul Flores. Ross said lots of people were looking at Roxy or Kristen Smart. And he said she was slurring her words at the party. And he says he never saw her and Paul Flores together at any point. Cheryl said she never saw Paul Flores do anything inappropriate with Kristen Smart. And she did a deposition with Jim Murphy in 1998, the Smart's lawyer who's been suing the Flores family. And she even admitted that she said things differently here than she did there. Ted Bolter was kind of an interesting guy because he had a tremendous amount of involvement with the get Paul Flores uh, vendetta. He was on True Crimes with Aphrodite Jones, and he had all this media involvement. And remember, he was a big media guy himself. And even though he testified pretty straightforward, I gotta give it to him, Mr. Misick asked him whether he was something. You'll have to go back and look at it. I don't remember it exactly. And he said he was not even sure that he saw Paul Flores at the party. He changed his testimony. You can go back and look at that. I've been wrong before. And then Jen got particularly nervous and took over things when Kristen went missing. And she was not a close friend of Kristen Smart. She was the person who took this on. The Cal Poly police clearly blew it. I think Mr. Pavrell and I agree on that. Derek testified that Paul Flores was friendly and he stuttered. Mr. Flores stutters. That's just who he is. That's the way it is. And Derek was a very nervous witness. It seemed hard for him to offer information. But he said, yeah, Paul made this joke. She's eating lunch with my mom. Bad thing to say, but obviously it means nothing. Detective Mike Kennedy said they were going to look at a bunch of things. But then if you look at his notes, June 19th, they decided to focus on Paul Flores. So that happened. 
Investigator Bill Hanley testified that Paul Flores was cooperative and polite. He said his partner, Larry Hobson, was an expert on getting people to confess. Paul Flores did not confess. He was very consistent, even though he's in there getting pummeled by the police. They try to push him, and the only thing that's not consistent is the black eye. Jeremy said they played basketball and nobody got any injuries. I mean, really? Anybody ever play basketball? You fall down a lot. This portion struck me as a strange tactic for the defense, too. Paul Flores is on tape admitting to investigators that he didn't get the black eye during the basketball game. And in Sanger's closing argument, he was still trying to suggest that all of the lies Paul told about his black eye were true. In fact, Jeremy's a liar for saying Paul didn't get hurt during the basketball game. And he continued to personally attack each and every prosecution witness. Karen had this ridiculous video. I think she said she sold it to one of the TV shows or something. She asked him this ridiculous question, and then it cuts off. Let's face it, that's not evidence of anything. Hey, hey Paul, do you have any information on that missing girl? What you do with her? <laughs> and then we had the Angie story. That was a strange one. She was visiting for Christmas or something else, and they went over to Ruben Flores's house just briefly. First of all, she had the wrong door they went out. That door led to one of the tenants' rooms. But in any case, then she says she went out towards some tree, and they said, okay, we gotta go. Now let's move on to the so-called scientific evidence. This is the evidence that's supposed to convince you there was a burial site underneath the deck. Now note that the anomalies were not consistent. They're not like a rectangle or a, uh, what's the word? I don't know. It's not like a box or something. You can see there are trees all around there. Do you think a tree would have caused an anomaly? This was an avocado orchard. It's all been dug up when they were building the house. When they built the walls, there was all sorts of bulldozing and digging and whatnot. It's amazing they didn't find more anomalies. Sanger paused for a second, and it looked like he might backpedal on that last statement. But he continued. So we're talking about the scientific, the so-called scientific evidence. Anyway, it is what it is. The evidence is what it is. So then we get to this so-called bathtub ring. And I know people had an emotional response to this, but it turns out it was tested and it wasn't blood. Shelby Liddell said they dug and they found these little things that looked like puddles. That didn't come back with anything from the HemDirect test. HemDirect doesn't mean anything, but it didn't even come back on that. Angela Butler was a nice enough person. When she came back on rebuttal, though, she had an attitude change. I don't know what prompted that. She was pretty much on edge. You were there. She had no real knowledge of the HemDirect test, except she got the brochure and she followed the instructions. The HemDirect doesn't mean anything. We've got a lot of junk science coming into the courtroom. Dr. Butler, who did have a PhD, said he didn't see any evidence of a body here. He has never seen the HemDirect test used in soils. Unless you have a validation study, it's not valid. That's what validation means. Though Sanger said Dr. Butler, he was presumably referring to his own witness, Dr. Carter. Liddell said, oh, we did experiments where we tested blood on clothing. Well, that's different. That's done in a lab somewhere. Though Sanger said Liddell, he was now presumably referring to Angela Butler. 
Dr. Carter, who by the way is a fellow for the Academy of Forensic Sciences, Mr. Prevell tried to embarrass him by asking, do you know how many archaeologists are in the state of California? He's not an archaeologist, he's a scientist. Then we have the ridiculous testimony of Jamie Lynn. She said, oh, by the way, I don't like Ruben Flores staying over there because he's attracting all these people honking, but I think they're moving a body. So what do they do? They get Miss Liddell to come out there, who I'm not trying to demean her, but she's not a scientist. She says, oh, look, Mr. Pavrell, we've got this blue star reaction. It just makes no sense. It's beyond speculation. So then I have to get to the 11A, and that's the last subject, but I wanted to point out a few quick things. Mr. Pavrell made a big deal over Mr. Flores not getting a TV guide and bringing it into the police. The defendant has no duty to prove anything. Another thing I couldn't pass up, Mr. Ruben Flores. He's been sitting here. Now he's sitting over there wearing his headphones. He just wants to know, why are you having my wife, or ex-wife, or still wife, but ex-wife status, why are you swabbing her? He clearly just made a mistake when he spoke, and he corrected it. It's just ridiculous. The mattress cover tests show that the results were uninformative. You can't convict somebody on this. It's just preposterous. And Dr. Johnson, who, by the way, is a real PhD scientist, said it's strange that some of those other things from the mattress didn't show up here. All right, so I'm going to finish up now, I promise. The jury system we came up with, well, we didn't come up with it. It goes back to ancient Greece via England. So there's that. But it says your role is to be an individual, not to change your mind based on the opinions of other jurors. Now I'm going to sit down and Mr. Pavrell will have an opportunity to make a rebuttal, to rebut the things I've just said, not to argue his case again and not to appeal to emotions. I'm going to count on all the jurors to remember the actual law. The prosecution has the burden of overcoming this presumption of innocence. I want to thank you sincerely for your attention. I'm now going to sit down. But when you examine all of the evidence that was given to you, I submit that the only proper verdict is not guilty. Sanger sat down at 11.55 a.m. and jurors were released for lunch. His closing, which spanned two court days, had lasted for five hours, not counting the breaks in between. And his style was confusing and exhausting. But as someone who had been personally attacked so many times by the defense, even accused of crimes, I wondered how much my perception of Sanger's closing was clouded by bias. I saw it in social media comments too. Could Sanger really be this bumbling? Or is Chris making him out to look that way? Is Sanger intentionally throwing the case so Paul can get an appeal for ineffective counsel? I'm pretty good at questioning myself. It's one of the things I do best. So I asked some of the other reporters present for those two days to share their opinions. Ann Priceman and Stephanie Barber are producers for NBC News who have covered court cases like this one for years. I counted up all the trials I'd done. You know, I was generous. I was saying if I went to a hearing. But it's like somewhere between 40 and 50. It's high. And I, I've never seen a style like that, in, in all honesty. And it seemed the goal was to be clearly thorough and chip away at something through some, in all honesty, meandering sort of fashion. Other attorneys have that, the sort of meandering and eventually getting a few gotchas in. 
But there were no gotchas with Sanger. The strategy, it's sort of it. It was, you know, just looking at the closing arguments themselves, the length where um, I think Pavrel went about an hour. Um, Sanger went six. And it's funny because I think a lot of victims' families are always concerned about appeal on the grounds of incompetent uh, representation. And that's not going to happen with Sanger because the man, like, if there was... There was, there's not a motion he did not explore. And his, you know, he was, whether he was crossing or arguing, it went on. It was thorough. And you really can't, there's no bumbling so much. I mean, some people noted that. But some people I know who shall remain nameless had to leave during the six hours because it was too much to take. Some journalists couldn't. It was weird. It was unusual. I should not have said weird, but it was weird. <laughs> never gonna get an interview with him this way but yeah I'm gonna get fired for that whatever I just said for me what helped me kind of interpret Singer was watching the jury's reactions to him and I saw a lot of times they're laughing they're making strange faces they're they seem either confused or bemused at him and all the time I'm thinking how is this actually playing out in their minds like how are they interpreting this approach because he certainly seemed to be a little bit of the confused route getting to a point and I'm not sure if a lot of people ever felt he got to a point that would have helped him or his clients. So definitely their reactions were notable to me because I've never seen juries quite have that reaction to a defense attorney before. And it was hard to tell if they were laughing at him or with him because he would make a lot of jokes at himself. And when you laugh at that, who are you really laughing at? You know, so that's, that was my take on it. Um, it definitely had an impact on them and ultimately I guess it didn't help them. I just kept writing notes because I'm waiting to see what the point is that he's getting at. And so I had to take every word seriously just in case there's something to come out of this. And in the end, I I wasn't sure that I had anything that made sense. Anything else you want to ask us? I'm good. Oh, God, I'm going to get fired. After the lunch break, Pavrel began his rebuttal of Sanger's closing. The prosecution's last chance to lay out their case for jurors before they would begin deliberating. And he'd had a long time to prepare. Rebuttal is wait and see. You just gotta wait and see what they do. And there were so many misstatements of fact that even a juror called it out. And at a certain point, you read the room and they're like, you don't have to tell them, you know, the dozens and dozens of misstatements of fact. I don't have to go through them all. And the reaction of, the, of Paul's jury was just, kind of like relief yes you don't we get it so i read the room i knew where i stood and then i I responded to kind of his his greatest hits of of things that he said this was all a conspiracy theory (laughs) um because uh, mr sanger took through the day and we closed the day during his argument i was able to read all of the reddit reactions to his argument so jt and i went through all of them to see just what people were thinking. I've never had that before, and I'll probably never have it again. (laughs) Um, But it it helped us uh, get ready for the following day for sure. But I knew I wasn't... ...wear a purple tie for closing. That's what I did know. Pavrel stood and addressed the jury. 24 hours ago, when counsel first started his closing, he told you this was all a big conspiracy. 
he would have you believe that 50-something witnesses and six dogs spanning 26 years are involved in a grand conspiracy to convict Paul Flores. That's not possible. It's absurd. He would have you believe even the media is in on it. Mr. Sanger has presented you with a binary choice. Either you believe this is all a big conspiracy, or Paul Flores killed Kristen Smart. Remember counsel asked the dog handlers, do you speak dog? Do you know what your dog is thinking? Are the dogs friends? Now I know why he asked them that, because it was a conspiracy among the dogs. Rebuttal is really about showing how absurd the defense argument is and really how little the jury would need to convict. Notably, the defense never called an expert to refute the cadaver dog evidence. You might remember during the motions in Limine, a month before the trial began, the defense had called Dr. Jim Haw, an animal behaviorist who specialized in birds, who Pavrel so thoroughly eviscerated during cross-exam that Sanger later accused him of hating birds and being very hard on birds, a meme that took off on social media. My wife and some of the members on the team started sending me memes of myself that I hate birds, which is not true. I like birds. I have nothing against birds. But after uh, 402s and, you know, the defense uh, expert, who was really a bird expert, not a dog guy, but really a bird expert, um, I thought those were hilarious. So I I had a good time with that. And in the defense and rebuttal episode, I told you about Dr. Ha showing up to testify during the trial, only to leave without taking the stand due to a hurricane warning back in Florida. It seemed strange. The hurricane didn't actually hit land for several more days, and he was physically present in the courthouse on Thursday, September 22nd. But after calling another witness in his place, Sanger told Judge O'Keefe the following week, that Dr. Ha wasn't able to fly back to California because of weather conditions. He said that he'd discussed the matter with Paul, and they had opted to drop him as a witness rather than waiting, leaving the cadaver dog evidence unchallenged, except by Sanger and Misik's own arguments. In the hallways, some of us wondered if there was another explanation for the defense dropping Dr. Ha at the last minute. Uh, you really beat him up in Korea. <laughs> At least that's the impression that I think everybody watching has. Thank you. Do you think that played any role in him eventually not testifying? Um, there was a hurricane, from what I remember, that he really got stuck. So I don't, I don't think my cross-examination had anything to do with him not testifying. I think it had to do with the hurricane. He left thinking he could get back, and he couldn't. I, th- I think it would have been amazing for the jury to see Mr. Prevell tear him up were you a little disappointed that you didn't get to cross-examine him in front of the jury i was very disappointed <laughs> i think that was kind of <laughs> pavrel continued using sanger's choice of words against him counsel said yesterday conspiracy theories could be fun did it look like the woman with the ball gag in her mouth was having fun when they were on the stand did it look like sarah doe was having fun Did it look like Rhonda Doe was having fun? When Steve was on the stand, looking at a picture of his friend Kristen, when Margarita told you about the last time she saw Kristen, when Jen told you about calling the police because she was worried, did it look like anybody was having fun? No, because this is not a fun case. He paused solemnly. I apologize. You have seen things in this case that no human being should see. Our theory is very simple. 
Paul Flores murdered Kristen Smart and buried her under his father's deck. Pavrel also rebutted Sanger's argument that the testimony of the two rape victims had nothing to do with Kristen Smart, even if they were telling the truth. Let's talk for a second about what that 1108 testimony tells you. It tells you that Paul Flores is a serial rapist. You would have to believe that a serial rapist had Kristen Smart to himself, intoxicated, right next to his dorm, and decided not to rape her. You would have to believe that Kristen Smart magically regained her faculties and walked away, and didn't walk to her room, but somehow decided to leave her cherished siblings, her parents. You would have to believe all of that, and that is absurd. Counsel tried to say that witnesses like Justin were in this for the reward. What a great way to get the reward. Let's submit an anonymous tip. Then 17 years later, when he comes forward, he doesn't go after the reward. He goes to the podcaster. Counsel told you Kristen was engaged in at-risk behavior. And what he said was that she kissed a guy at a college party. Sure, pick on the girl who's dead and can't defend herself. The only at-risk behavior of Kristen Smart was existing in the same zip code as Paul Flores. Eagle-eyed followers at home recognized the quote, a comment that had been left in a Reddit thread discussing the first half of Sanger's closing the day before. Um, I don't think I changed a word of that post. I thought it was, I couldn't think of it myself. It was fantastic. It perfectly conveyed the ridiculousness of uh, the defense argument. So I just poached it. So shout out and thank you to Tiger Bomb. Great wording. This is not about what she was wearing that night, except for the red and black fibers found in the soil. Council talked about varying results in the soil samples. Well, they're different samples. If you dig 10 holes and you bury a murder weapon in one, if somebody finds it, do you say, well, the other nine holes were empty? Does that invalidate that you found the murder weapon? Council said the GPR anomaly was created when the house was built, but the anomaly was only six feet long, not running alongside the whole wall of the house. That's because it's not from building the house. Let's talk about Dr. Elizabeth Johnson. How could somebody be an expert in a test she's never used? You guys know as much as she does about those tests. She said she needed a validation study for soil testing. She's been on this case for 14 months. She could have done her own study, but she didn't. So what does that tell you? She's getting paid $2,000 a day, and it's not about the truth. She wordsmithed her opinion. She said extensive validation studies similar to this case must be done first, and that is literally impossible. Are we supposed to find a body, bury it in the soil, and then dig it up in 2048? to see if we get positive results with the test? All of the control samples taken from other locations in Ruben Flores's yard tested negative for human blood. That's the point of having a control. It shows that the test is working. This business with the pH is a complete red herring. Miss Butler used the manufacturer's buffer, which fixes the pH. If the soil on that property was so acidic, as counsel would have you believe, all of the tests would be false positive. Council tried to cast aspersions on Rhonda Doe simply because she lived near Arroyo Grande and attended Cal Poly for part of 1996. Are we supposed to dismiss every witness who attended Cal Poly? 
And if Rhonda Doe had been aware of this case and saw Paul Flores on the news and then recognized him when she met him in 2008, what would she have done? She would have run for the hills. Remember when we talked during jury selection about Heathcliff, the little boy whose mom tells him not to eat a powdered donut sitting on the table? And when she comes back in the room, the donut is gone and there's powder and crumbs all over Heathcliff's mouth. Counsel tried to say, well, what if Heathcliff's big sister has her hands behind her back and there's powder and crumbs all over them? But there's no big sister here, is there? Because Paul Flores killed Kristen Smart. Pavrel stopped and looked into Paul's eyes for several seconds before moving on. Remember what the judge told you earlier? That statements of the attorneys are not evidence? There were so many misstatements of fact in counsel's closing, I stopped counting. If any of you go back there to deliberate and someone says, well, the defense attorney said this in his closing, please request a readback of the testimony from the court reporter. Dr. David Carter's testimony was that he cannot visually confirm human remains from the photographs. Well, this isn't a legal term, but duh. So you folks are actually in a better position to judge this than any of the witnesses. Because you've heard everything. You can put this all together. I was waiting for evidence last week of the Flores family ferret farm. I was waiting for evidence of the Flores family gorilla sanctuary. But we didn't get that evidence. Because it is 100% beyond any doubt human blood. Counsel couldn't provide an explanation for his client's excessive lying, especially that Kristen was walking fine on her own. In his first interview, he says she needed help walking, but he fixes that because he knows you can't have sex with someone who's incapacitated. Counsel talked about people inserting themselves into this case. So because everybody except the Flores family moved heaven and earth to find Kristen smart, that's a reason to not find him guilty of murder? Pavrel paused, looking down at his notes. There's still no alibi. He has no alibi for Saturday morning because he was murdering Kristen Smart and planning to bury the body with his dad. Counsel said Paul Flores was pummeled by police during his interviews. Thankfully, you can watch the video. It was quite a collegial interview. And still he lied through his teeth. Counsel said Ruben Flores sent a plumber away because he was going to fix it himself. If that was true, he would have done it. He wouldn't have called the plumber in the first place. He just didn't want somebody poking around under his house because Kristen Smart was buried there. This case is proved with just the testimony of Tim and Cheryl. Tim told you Kristen couldn't walk on her own. Cheryl told you about Paul's sexual intent. The case is proved just at that. What else was he going to do with her? Just sit there and stare at her? If that's not enough for you, you have the testimony of him hunting her, watching her at parties, staring, waiting in her dorm building late at night where he doesn't belong. If that's not enough for you, you have her family's testimony. Kristen would never leave her family. She would never miss her siblings' graduations. She would never miss her siblings' weddings. She would never miss the births of her nieces and nephews. If that's not enough for you, you have Paul's body language during the police interview. He tells lie after lie after lie. 
He remembers every detail of a pool game he played that night, how he sunk the eight ball. But suddenly when it's about Kristen, he says he blacked out. If that's not enough for you, you have Ruben Flores guarding that deck. When Stan Smart gets too close, when Angie gets too close, when officers search his house in February of 2020 and take pictures of that deck, he knew they were coming back and they had to move Kristen fast. If that's not enough for you, you have Jamie Lynn's observations. She heard them yelling and pulling a trailer up alongside the house at night. They even had to remove a fence to get it back there. Coincidentally, just four days after that search when they photographed the deck. If that's not enough for you, you have the blue star lighting up like a Christmas tree in that trailer. If it's not blood, then it's bleach. Why are they bleaching one area on the floor of a dirty work trailer just inside the door right where it opened up beside the deck. If that's not enough for you, you have an anomaly under that deck, just the right size, just the right shape, in just the right location. It's the perfect place to hide a body. If that's not enough for you, you have a surface disturbance on that anomaly that shows it was dug down into. It's unlike any other anomaly the GPR found on that property. If that's not enough for you, you have the dark red staining found inside that anomaly, which Cindy Arrington testified was consistent with a cadaver soak stain found in human burial sites. If that's not enough for you, you have 13 positive tests for human blood in that staining. If that's not enough for you, you have fibers in that same soil that just happened to contain all the colors of the clothing Kristen Smart was wearing the night she disappeared. And if that's not enough, then what you seek is perfection, which does not exist. Sometimes we tell our children that monsters don't exist, and that's not true. We've seen one in this trial. The only proper verdict is that Paul Flores is guilty of Kristen Smart's murder. If that's not enough, then this. If that's not enough, then this. If that's not enough, and then you end at that, because that's the truth. You have way more than you need to convict Paul Flores of murder. I think you're always thinking, you know, did, did we miss something? Is there anything else we could have done? Um, but then at the end of it, knowing that it, it, was, it was all left out there and um, sad in many ways to have it kind of wrap up in, um, in that closing argument that, um, you know, there's a lot of people that stood up for Kristen and a lot of people that wanted her story told and... Um, I think that's how I would, would call it. It was just a really, um, really impactful uh, wrap-up of, you know, 26 years of sadness and suffering, um, but eventually of having her voice heard. And for that, I was grateful to be a part of it. I had chills. I thought it was one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen in 32 years in law enforcement. And after he had sat down, I texted him that in the courtroom. That that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Just very well done. Pavrel returned to his seat. And before Judge O'Keefe could give the jurors final instructions for deliberating, defense attorney Robert Sanger asked for a recess. I have a motion. Outside of the presence of jurors, Sanger addressed the judge. I did object a couple of times on misstating the evidence, and I think that occurred several times. I feel there's a clear constitutional violation regarding the burden of proof. 
So I think I'm forced to make a motion for mistrial at this late stage. If the court denies the motion, I request that the jury receive curative instructions as to how Mr. Pavrell misstated the law. Mr. Pavrell did just what I knew he was going to do. He pointed to the ball gag photo as evidence of Mr. Flores's bad conduct. But here's the big one. The big one was he said, it's a binary choice. Either you believe Mr. Sanger's conspiracy theory or you believe the prosecution. It's absolutely unconstitutional. The defendant need not prove anything. Pavrell responded, Your Honor, counsel has now made eight frivolous motions for mistrial, all of them spurious. I was clear on burden of proof. I took my language directly from the law. Quite frankly, counsel made the ridiculous argument that this was all a conspiracy. This was simply rebuttal. I'd ask the court to deny the motion. Judge O'Keefe replied, The court is going to respectfully deny the motion. I have informed the jury numerous times that the arguments of counsel are not evidence, and if the statements of counsel conflict with court instructions, they are to follow my instructions. Sanger pushed back. I would request that the jury be told this is not a binary choice, or at least read the instructions again to the jury regarding burden of proof. I have the case law here in my briefcase if your honor would like to review it. Judge O'Keefe spoke calmly. I'm not granting the mistrial. My characterization of the rebuttal is somewhat different from yours. How I heard his argument is that he did not find your characterization of the case credible as a conspiracy theory. And if not that, then what is more reasonable? I'm happy to take a look at the case law if you have it ready, Mr. Sanger. All parties left the courtroom for a 15-minute recess before Judge O'Keefe returned to her seat. The court had an opportunity to review the case law. The court is still declining to grant a motion for mistrial or to give curative instructions to the jury. The court finds there was no misconduct. Sanger tried again. May I put the case law on the record? Mr. Pavrell said this is a binary choice. That's absolutely unconstitutional. Judge O'Keefe spoke more sternly, telling Sanger she was ready to bring the jury back in for instruction. At 2.47 p.m., she informed Paul's jurors that they needed to choose a foreperson. After discussing the case, their verdict would have to be unanimous. They could find Paul Flores guilty of first-degree murder, guilty of second-degree murder, or not guilty. At 2.59 p.m., the 12 jurors were led to a deliberation room, and the five remaining alternates were dismissed, but asked to remain available to fill in if something happened to a juror. 20 minutes later, Ruben Flores's jury filed into the courtroom, and were told that in order to find Ruben Flores guilty of accessory to murder, they needed to believe the following things were true. That Paul Flores committed a felony. That Ruben Flores knew Paul committed a felony and that Reuben aided Paul in concealing evidence of that felony. They were asked to return at 8.30 a.m. for closing arguments. Wednesday morning, Pavrel began his second closing argument. Since the evidence and testimony were virtually identical, with few exceptions, I'll avoid repeating what you've already heard. Justice delayed does not have to be justice denied, Pavrel told Reuben's jury. Yes, 26 years have passed. In the years since, Ruben Flores continued to hide Kristen's body under his deck, and Paul Flores continued to rape women. 
the only reason to hide a body is to help somebody get away with murder or to get away with murder yourself. You saw the phone records from Paul Flores's dorm room that night. What didn't you see in those records? There's no call to 911 because 911 couldn't give him the kind of help he needed. He needed help to get away with murder. Instead, he calls Ruben. Then on May 30th, he calls Ruben again, immediately after leaving his interview with campus police to warn him that investigators were onto them. Ruben Flores would do anything to help his son. Ruben Flores has been helping him for 26 years. When Stan Smart came to talk to Ruben father to father, Ruben came bombing out of his house and met him in the street because he didn't want Stan Smart to get anywhere near his deck. He threatens to shoot a man who's searching for his 19-year-old daughter, not in his driveway, not at his door, in the middle of a public street. You heard that Ruben Flores would refer to Kristen Smart as a dirty slut. Do you use this term to describe a complete stranger? Slut has a sexual connotation to it. He knew there was a sexual component to what occurred between Paul and Kristen. You heard that there was a smorgasbord of Kristen Smart paraphernalia located in Ruben's bedroom in 2020. Dozens and dozens of items related to Kristen Smart. Not in a folder in the attic, not in a file cabinet in the garage, in his bedroom. This was Ruben Flores's trophy room. Only one spot in that entire backyard happened to have a surface disturbance showing it had been dug down into. Happened to be the perfect size for a human burial site. Ed testified that he and his son built this deck with one other person and nobody was injured on the job. He dug the foundation using a backhoe. Cindy Arrington told you this hole was dug by hand because there were no mechanical marks associated with a backhoe. The staining didn't start until two to four feet down. So we know this is not a plumbing issue or we would have staining on the surface going all the way down. They hid Kristen Smart's body. The body contains evidence of a crime because you would be able to tell how the person died. If somebody hides that body, it's proof that there was a crime. The lies, the destruction of evidence, all of this tells you their intent. To qualify for accessory after the fact, you only need to know three things. Paul Flores committed a felony. Ruben Flores knew Paul Flores committed a felony. And after the felony was committed, Ruben Flores aided him with the intention of protecting him from consequences. What I'm asking for today is accountability. The only truthful verdict is that Ruben Flores is guilty of being an accessory to murder. Pavrel's closing was just under two hours long. The closing went long. It went very long. Probably too long. But you mean yours or you mean... I mean mine. Mine. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done longer than an hour closing. It, it was probably too long for Ruben's jury because I could tell by the end. You can kind of read the room, right? I'm like, okay, I need to wrap this up. But there's just so much to go over and so much to combat, so much uh, inaccuracy as to my evidence that I knew I had to go over things sometimes as a prophylactic but I needed to be 100% thorough because I knew defense was going to go very long for closing and I knew that to rebut everything they say over an hours and hours and hours was just not going to be possible so I had to be 
extremely thorough first time around. After a short bathroom break, defense attorney Harold Misick stood and addressed the jurors. Well, good morning. Welcome back. Did you get all your answers? You still have more questions than answers? That wouldn't be surprising. Kristen Smart is still missing, and we don't know what happened to her. This has been the longest trial I've ever been involved in. You all showed up every day ready to rock. You're real warriors in my mind. You've earned my and my clients' respect for that. You guys have the ultimate authority to decide what all of this means. My client's absolutely innocent. Hasn't done a thing. Hasn't dug a grave in his life. I think this case screams reasonable doubt. It starts with no body. And without a body, we can't honestly be sure that Kristen Smart is dead. I know it's the most likely conclusion. But if you can conclude that it's reasonable she's not dead, then it's reasonable she's alive. The state has done a great job of demonizing Paul Flores and my client. These aren't evil people. This man especially is not an evil person. He's 81 years old. Never been charged with a crime in his life. Paul Flores was 19 years old. He was an awkward freshman who liked to wear baseball caps. He liked to play pool and he liked to drink. Paul Flores was innocent and his actions were helpful. When Kristen Smart fell at the party, he helped her up. He was doing a good deed. He wasn't hunting her. He was being kind to her. He wasn't attracted to her because she's six foot one and he was five nine or five seven. I think five seven. She's significantly taller than him. Don't do the state's work for them. This mini series lasted for three months, 26 years in development, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on investigations, sting operations, wiretaps, 10,000 phone interceptions in one month, super dogs with cool names like Choya and Annie. You know, there's evidence to support a reasonable inference that Kristen Smart is just missing. She had a habit of disappearing. She lied frequently. She only had one real friend at Cal Poly. The other girls didn't like her because she was boy crazy. It's not entirely unlikely that Kristen Smart is still alive somewhere. She was not under my client's deck, ever. He's never dug a hole in his life. This whole thing is completely foreign to him. He's a good man, a grandfather, a husband, a former Redondo police officer, a member of the Elks. He's a generous, kind man. He's not an evil man, no matter how he's been portrayed. Paul Flores did a good deed helping her off the ground and helping her get home. He gets her within sight of her own dorm. You could see her dorm from where they parted. Then he goes to bed. He's drunk, throws up, has to sleep off his hangover. Sunday morning, he calls his dad, says, I know you're working tomorrow because it's double time. How about picking me up so I can come home and work on my truck? He's selling it. Stan Smart rightfully, or righteously, was mad at Reuben. He's been going by his house regularly. He wanted to confront Reuben. He did confront Reuben. Confronted my guy in his own front yard. Mr. Smart was probably angry. So when Mr. Flores says somebody might get shot, he's protecting himself. Angie was engaged to be married to Paul. She was dressed nice for a dinner party at Susan's house. I thought it was Christmas, maybe not. 
Ruben Flores had four golden retrievers. There was poop all over. He didn't want her to step in it. Didn't want to be late. He's timely. The only conclusion Cindy Arrington drew when I confronted her about the bathtub ring, that's not a bathtub ring. If you've ever drained a bathtub, it leaves a nice even ring around the bathtub. That's not what this was. These are not human decomposition stains. If Kristen Smart's body had been in this hole for 26 years, half of the body is roughly fluid. She's 145 pounds, 72 pounds of fluid, 8 pounds to the gallon. That's 9 gallons of bodily fluid. You'd see much greater staining. Remember, Dr. David Carter said grave sites are messy. Cindy Arrington said the stains could be decomposing tree roots. So she's not able to conclusively say it's not decomposition fluid. It's got to be something else. Even if it is someone's blood, Angie Butler told you she couldn't source the blood. Could be anybody's blood. Faye Springer was absolutely credible. She was a great witness. What did she say about the fibers? I can't attach any significance to that. They could figure out where those fibers came from. You've seen those movies. It's not that hard. They didn't do that. The HemDirect test. It does cross-react with ferrets, which I know were illegal in California in 1996. I don't know if it's ferret blood. I don't know if it's higher primate blood. They used a test that's specifically invalid. The manufacturer said, don't use it. Dr. Carter, absolutely wonderful expert. What did he say? This isn't a gravesite. And he's an expert in the field. Clear expert. The stains are lamellae. This soil is high in iron oxide. It migrates down through the soil. What's hemoglobin? It's iron. You can go back in that room and decide how you want this to end. You're the jury and you're the finder of fact, but don't get pushed into connecting dots that don't exist. You heard from several witnesses, many of them friends of Kristen Smart. They weren't her friends in 1996. Kendra, she's here for one reason, to convict Paul and Ruben Flores. Steve, no respect at all for the truth. He just got up there and made stuff up. He was nowhere to be found early in the investigation. Jennifer and Justin, you judge their credibility. Her interaction with the Facebook posse and your own backyard, other stuff. I don't know if she was looking for the reward or if she's just looking for her 15 minutes of fame. Looks like she gets neither. Let's talk about the dogs. I'm a dog lover. I've had a couple of dogs. But dogs can only find something that's there, right? This scent of death hocus pocus. There's absolutely no scientific support for it. None. In all of these excavations over the years, what do they find? Nothing. There was never a body for them to find. She's not been in touch with her family for 26 years. The likely conclusion is that she's dead. If you don't know, that's certainly reasonable doubt. And again, the only evidence that Kristen Smart was in Paul Flores' room is the dog alerts. But remember, this room was separately identified from all the other rooms. The only room with crime scene tape. If the handlers got a suspicion, dogs like to please their handlers. The phone call. It's an innocent call. Come get me so I can have dinner at home. Paul had to take his stereo out of his truck so he could sell it. It had these speaker amps behind the seat, so you had to take the seats out and everything. It was a whole big production. They had to move that trailer to Ruben's house because it was being vandalized by the Facebook posse. 
Pavrel objected that that fact was not in evidence, and Judge O'Keefe sustained. Misik moved on, putting up the picture of the Kristen Smart paraphernalia found in Ruben's bedroom. Let's talk about this treasure trove. If you look at the one paper Mr. Pavrel pointed out, it says, Dig the Yard. It also has a date on there, 12-15-16. That had nothing to do with digging the yard. I believe that's when they were going to dig Susan Flores's yard. And his admission. When you're desperate, you rely on things like a slip of the tongue. He had already been swabbed because he was charged with a felony. He was surprised, though, that they were going to take the DNA of his wife and his friend Mike. That's not an admission. It was a very cold night out. Kristen Smart was not dressed for the weather. She had short shorts on, a top and pumas. She was freezing. She said so several times. They called it a hug, but he rubbed his arms up and down on her, trying to warm her up. He was doing a good deed. The state has not met their burden by any stretch of the imagination. It's your duty to render a not guilty verdict and to render it quickly. A quick verdict would tell the state, when you want to bring a charge like this, bring us some real evidence. Something happened to Kristen Smart. Paul Flores was clearly the most likely suspect. Paul Flores didn't rape or kill her. This case is doubtful from beginning to end. I'd like you to find my client not guilty. I'd like you to say this is insufficient evidence and send us all home. Harold Misick sat down at 11.47 a.m. In contrast to Sanger's closing, Misick's lasted just 37 minutes. And rather than wait until after lunch to rebut, Pavrel decided to squeeze it into the next 13 minutes of court time. Good morning again. I wanted to start off with what I was waiting for, which was a reasonable explanation for Ruben Flores's admission. All we got was that he was surprised. He wasn't surprised. It was a planned visit. He had a table out ready for detectives. Counsel said that Paul Flores did a good deed. There is no chivalry in sexual violence. You think Rhonda Doe thought he did a good deed? You think Sarah Doe thought he did a good deed? Counsel asked you, how can you honestly be sure she's dead? That's not our standard. We're not here for certainty. This is about whether you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Counsel said dogs are only supposed to alert when something is there. You heard testimony about residual odor. You heard that those dogs are trained to locate a scent after the primary source has been removed. Dr. David Carter testified that in his opinion, he could not visually confirm human remains, which is obvious because you don't see a body there. Cindy Arrington said the staining could be from the decomposition of plant roots, which is why we had Angie Butler tested. That's why we did the tests. Counsel said the anomaly could have been from when the avocado orchard was removed, before the house was built. If that was the case, we would have seen anomalies all over the property. It would have looked like a cemetery, but this was the only one. I ask you for a truthful verdict, that Ruben Flores is guilty of accessory to murder, beyond a reasonable doubt. Pavrel took his seat, and Ruben's jurors were excused for the lunch break before returning at 1.30. After receiving final instructions from the judge, they were excused to begin deliberating at 1.43, and the three remaining alternates were asked to remain on call. And for the next eight days, the rest of us waited. And waited.
it's a lot of just downtime and you're just waiting for a call and you talk about time going backwards we're doing this for Krista and if the smart family can stay strong for 26 years and we can too that's exactly what we told each other it's in this is it Paul's foreman gave the verdict first and I couldn't believe my ears I did everything I could for those victims voices to be heard and there's nothing else I can do next time you've been listening to people versus flores a special bonus series at the your own backyard podcast for more updates go to your own backyard scroll Okay, that was it for now for both of them, I believe, is my thinking that there is going to be a conclusion part three, but I don't know yet because it wasn't said at the end of this episode if an episode, a part three is coming out. So, yeah, um... I just think that, like, the arguments, the arguments um, of the defense was kind of stupid. He was badgering, not badgering, he was belittling, belittling the witnesses' statements about Paul Flores being an asshole and a rapist all in one he was belittling all those women saying that they didn't like they lied and this and that you don't know that who are you to say that these women did not like like tell the truth on the stand they told the truth I I, as a woman believe those women were telling the truth Honestly, like, why? What is their motive to lie? What are they trying to possibly gain? What? Women these days, they don't do it to gain publicity at all. They don't do it to gain popularity. They do it because they want to be heard. They want people to know their story. Like, people don't understand that. And... And yes, this is very sensitive when it comes down to rape because it's again down to he said, she said, and we don't know what really, really happened. Like, you know, like what is the variation of the truth? But sometimes we have to side with the victim because the victim experienced it and they get really badgered by the defense a lot. Like, is it true? This isn't that. And like, is it true you were this in high school? And they start digging into your past which kind of sucks because they're digging into your past they're digging into everything that is about you and it just sucks because you're the one on the stand as a woman testifying your like your whole story of not you meeting Paul Flores but you having a inappropriate sexual encounter with him and it's just annoying that this defense lawyer on Paul Flores' side is saying that these women are lying and 
like really it took a lot out of them to just sit there and tell and explain to the jurors the 12 jurors and the and the five extra ones about her about their story slash encounter with Paul Flores and it just irks me that this man is saying that I just love the prosecution side I love the fact that he has experienced so many of different scenarios and different cases and he knows the layout he knows everything I just love the fact that he does that I love love the fact that like he goes in the end of the closing statements he he gives a two-hour long closing statement and um he said the reason why he did it was because he knew he knew that the that the defense was going to literally be longer than he was so he was literally taking the two hour of his time to not slander but kind of like say the last thoughts and last things that he needed to say before the defense says something to counteract that and kind of just you know just kind of be like you know forget what the prosecution said listen to we what we say because we have the actual facts here we we told you everything from this from our first argument like our second to last argument and what you're listening to is just belligerent theories and whatnot so and so he didn't want that to happen. He just wanted to be like, you know, kind of like reiterate every, almost everything, but in less detail. More kind of like reiterate, but a synopsis of the reiteration. So I love the, prosecu- the prosecutor in this case because he knew what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, what he was going to say. And this one kind of just kind of took the spur of the moment. The defense took the spur of the moment and be like, no, I'm just going to wing it for this case. I'm just going to wing it. But, yeah, in all fairness, he did wing <laughs> I'm not laughing. Um, But I'm laughing at the fact that he w- kind of... I kind of feel like he did wing it at this point. Like, he kind of went... He took improv class and he did this. He was like, you know, I'm just going to wing this case. based Not just based on the facts of the prosecutor. But, but I'm also just going to be a bully to the witnesses just a little bit and i hated the fact too that the defense lawyer was basically bad not badgering also but bullying a dead a dead girl like seriously like what is wrong with you you're belittling a dead girl that's not even alive anymore like wh- why like saying that she used to yeah we understood she had different multiple names to herself but that's what college is you it's not like it changes who you it's not just that it changes who you are but it it makes you kind of a different person than you were with your family it kind of makes you free it kind of makes you this this and that but that's who she was she was a free-spirited woman and and that's how she liked it there's nothing wrong with that and Kate, okay, yes, 
maybe after an hour being there, she drank a little bit of alcohol and maybe a kissed maybe two, three guys. But that's not really a whore or a slut. That's just having fun with no harm, no foul, just kissing or making out. There's nothing wrong with doing that at college parties. Like, seriously? Like, this guy makes a big deal out of that. Like, he makes a short big deal out of it, but he's just like, you know, like, she was like, they make it out like she's such an innocent girl, but meanwhile, we hear from multiple people from the party that she wasn't really innocent, that she was drunk after getting there two hours, after not getting there, but being there two hours, she was drunk, and she was out of her mind, and she was kissing multiple guys. Like, no, I'm saying that. Like, so I don't know why I'm saying it in a southern accent, but really, kissing multiple guys. Out of all the stuff that we heard from your backyard, we hear that she kissed one guy in the bathroom, and she cried to him, thinking that she wasn't beautiful, and asked him, "Do you think I'm beautiful?" Like, where in there did you hear from the podcast that she kissed multiple guys? Nowhere. Maybe you heard it from multiple other people. Maybe you didn't. But maybe these people, I'm not saying that they're lying. But I'm saying it may be fabricated. But, you know, it is what it is. We shall wait and that special episode will come out soon. Once that special episode comes out from them. So, but I hope you guys enjoyed this one. This one was a lot because I put two of these parts together in one episode. So, it's a lot. But if you heard me in the background, just ignore me. I should have said that from the get-go. If you heard me in the background, just ignore me. Because I was talking to my brother. So, yeah. But, speak to you guys in the next one. Bye.